This is hell. And I am back with one less tooth, yet another victim to poverty and capitalism, and a lot less pain. And we start this week's pain with the flooding that's devastating America's heartland and threatening our food supply. Then after the devastation of flooding, we'll have a much-needed discussion on the most devastating of all crimes, rape. After floods and rape, we'll try to figure out how mobility and a sense of place are cornerstones within the institution of racism, and then we'll try to figure out what the hell is really happening in Brazil as our media here in the U.S. is completely ignoring the revolution that may be starting. Of course, Jeff Dorchin will have a moment of truth, which I'll tell you about in a moment. And during my monologue, I'm very, very unhappy about the new recreational decriminalized marijuana law here in Illinois. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is Hell, this week's live four-hour This is Hell is being broadcast from here, the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now at thisishell.com podcast in its entirety shortly after our live broadcast, also at thisishell.com. We are rebroadcasting in an abbreviated form, on the South Side's Lumpen Radio, and on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio, and on Instagram at thisishell. During this week's hell, you may have noticed in the news that the United States heartland, you know, where most of us get our food, is underwater, and there seems to be no end in sight. Flooding has devastated farms, roads, towns, and cities that are all necessary for us to get the food we need to survive. Levees have gone unprepared. People have evacuated in what might be a new permanent normal. And islands have formed where once there were communities only a few months ago. Things are getting real bad in the heartland. And if you don't think this is global warming, well, then you're probably a Republican. We better start thinking of a better way to convince you it's time something gets done about climate change without actually using the words climate change because apparently to Nebraska Republicans, those kind of things are radioactive. We'll start this week's show with the return of writer Ten Genoways who posted the New Republic article, River of No Return, How Austerity and Climate Change Put Northeastern Nebraska Underwater. Ted is a contributing editor at the New Republic and author of This Blessed Earth, A Year in the Life of of an American Farm, as well as The Chain Farm Factory and the Fate of Our Food. Ted is the winner of the 2018 James Beard Foundation Award for Investigative Journalism, and he was on our show a couple of times in the past, including in 2005, or 15, sorry, 2015, to discuss his book, The Chain, which was a finalist for the James Beard Foundation Award for Writing and Literature. Find out what or find out more about Ted at tedgenoways.com. That's tedgenoways, G-E-N-O-ways.com. After discussing the relentless flooding we are experiencing in the climate-changed heartland, which may soon need cardiac resuscitation, rape is a very difficult thing to discuss, and understandably, our second guest this week believes it is the most heinous of all crimes. But the way we do, and especially don't discuss rape, gives society the impression that the rape is what defines the survivor's life from that point on. When in fact, instead of being perceived as a vulnerable victim, they should be seen as someone with the incredible will and strength to survive. 
But even that kind of thinking, you, you, when our second guest actually put that into words, can actually lead to threats of sexual violence, including rape. We'll hopefully have a conversation on rape that doesn't fall into all the tropes and cliches that every other tragedy-centric, victimized woman, all men are inherently rapists interview is when we discuss rape with award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author Mithu Sanyal, who has written a new book entitled Rape from Lucretia to Me Too. Mithu's first book, 2009's Vulva, The Unveiling of the Invisible Sex, was translated into five languages. You can follow Mithu on Twitter at M. Sanyal. That's M S A N Y A L. Then in the third hour of this week's show, after we've talked flooding and rape, race is, of course, not a biological thing, but a social and political construct. This social and political construct is the foundation of institutional racism. That foundation is built upon, as our third guest will argue this week, access to mobility and a sense of place. Ever wonder why, as a white person, you've never seen a sobriety checkpoint, or maybe you have once or twice, but not that often? Wonder why your Latino and Latina friends say they're always stopped at checkpoints, supposedly to stop drunk driving? That's because racial identities are defined by access to mobility and the place where minorities live. We'll learn all about the role mobility and place play in institutional racism and the erasing of people of color from U.S. history when we speak with Chicana and Chicano studies scholar Genevieve Carpio, author of Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race. Genevieve is assistant professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at... University of California, Los Angeles. And you can follow Genevieve on Twitter at Jenna Carpio. That's G-E-N-A-C-A-R-P-I-O. Following our discussion of race defined by limits to mobility in place, back on May 15th, over a million people took the streets of Brazil in a massive teachers and students strike. You may have missed it because it didn't get much press in the West and especially here in the U.S. Then on May 30th, even more people marching against what the protesters were saying was an attack on critical thinking by the government of Jair Bolsonaro. But you probably didn't hear about those protests either. And they were reporting that they were the same size as the support as rallies that were in support of Bolsonaro, which they weren't, despite the supporters rallying on weekends while his opponents are marching on weekdays, or that the protest crowds were in the tens of thousands, not nearly two million. That's how the reporting has been going so far. We'll find out, as we always do, what's really happening in Brazil when we have the return of our correspondent on all things Brazil, journalist Brian Muir who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington Wall Street and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Brian is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com. That's Brazil with an S. And Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Then we'll wrap up the whole show as we do most weeks. And that's with a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff reads an interview with a monster. And I'm very, very, very depressed about Illinois' recriminalization of marijuana that they've somehow convinced the media is actually decriminalization. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host Chuck Mertz producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Uh, you ever have a deeply existential shower in which you confront your own decadent behavior? Uh, twice a day. 
Uh, I cannot recommend it, everybody. Do not do that. <laughs> How did you uh, still feel unclean? You? <laughs> still feel... That's why you have to bring like steel wool in the show. It really keeps you clean. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is a twist on potato tacos. According to an article in the Los Angeles Times last month headlined, This potato taco recipe is the perfect hangover cure by Genevieve Coe, who writes, I came up with these home fried tacos using fresh spring potatoes and onions. Standard tacos de papas are deep fried tortillas and folded around mashed potatoes so you get crunchy shells encasing a soft center. Ooh, that sounds nice. But with this recipe, you get the opposite, a soft wrapper around a crisp filling. Chili-coated potatoes are skillet-seared like home fries with quick caramelized spring onions, then smashed onto warm tortillas. While the potatoes taste great on their own and would be awesome on a plate with fried bacon and eggs, they're the epitome of comfort food when folded into soft tortillas. Fresh jalapeno slices, salsa, and lime add brightness, while salty cheese enriches the mix. Yes, they are the perfect hangover breakfast or, well, lunch, and they're just as delicious on the dinner table, too. So that makes this week's hangover cure potato tacos. Kind of. Kind of. It's kind of weird. I was having trouble actually understanding that recipe then i had to read through the whole thing and then i didn't want to share the entire recipe with everybody sounds like genevieve just got drunk and made tacos the next day i know that's what i mean and in the wrong order too you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove us wrong this is hell every stoner and cop i've talked to have said the same thing illinois new Recreational marijuana law has been a long time coming, and it's about freaking time we finally have pot decriminalization. For the heads I've spoken with, they cannot wait to spark up a huge spliff at midnight on January 1st, 2020, to enjoy their newfound freedom in a world where weed, a naturally growing thing, is no longer against unnatural human-made laws. They no longer will have to worry about being busted for holding because there is no penalty for carrying anything less than an ounce, and whoever carries an ounce around with them. For law enforcement, I've engaged with on the subject of recreational marijuana being introduced into this new world of decriminalized ganja. They tell me the punitive aspects of marijuana law laws have always been unfair and unequally distributed. They always say that any societal danger from herb comes nowhere close to the lethal- lethality of alcohol. As a not-too-far aside, I also just found out that cops are financially incentivized to give out tickets. Apparently, you get time and a half in court appearances. So no, there are no arrest quotas, but there sure is a lot of money in handing out tickets and locking folks up for police officers. But whether you're someone who was popped for pot or someone who did the popping, it seems everyone's happy about the decriminalization of marijuana and its new recreational status. That is... Everyone except me, because the new law does not decriminalize or make marijuana a recreational drug. If marijuana, by definition, was decriminalized, there would be no crime associated with marijuana at all. None. That's what decriminalize means, to take crime out of something. That's why Governor Pritzker and others co-opted the term, because they wanted to mislead you into voting for them, thinking the icky would not be associated with any crime or penalty. But somehow, marijuana in decriminalized Illinois is still a crime. 
Remember, you cannot have more than 30 grams on you, so a bit more than an ounce. And I bet you're thinking I never carry more than a quarter, so who cares? Because that's what I was thinking until I talked to my dealer. I tell you who cares about over 30 grams being a crime. Your freaking dealer cares. I know you're thinking you won't need your dealer anymore with decriminalized recreational pot. Guess again. The legal weed only available in these new high-end weed boutiques that by law need a great deal of capital to operate are going to be out of reach of those who had been making a living by dealing all these years. But your dealer won't be out of business because the huge corporations that are already targeting the chronic market are going to have real, real high prices on their grass. Way higher than your dealer ever asked. So maybe out of loyalty, maybe out of friendship, maybe out of concern for your dealer's well-being, maybe out of concern for your bottom line and simple convenience, you're probably going to keep getting the dankity-dank from the same person you've been buying it from for all these years. And don't think there's going to be all these great new delivery services because, again, delivery services won't be able to carry more than 30 grams, so you actually might get reefer at 2 a.m. on a Sunday. But you aren't going to get much, and it's going to cost you more than you ever paid when Mary Jane was a crime. And how the hell is this law a recreational marijuana law? If it was recreational, I could go to the park, out back behind my house, a place of recreation, and pull fat bong hits out of a four-foot gravity bong on a picnic table while I'm grilling and playing horseshoes or whatever the hell it is people do on picnics and parks. I can't remember the last time I was on a picnic, but I sure was hoping the next picnic I was on was going to include open recreational pot smoking. But in Illinois' world of recreational marijuana that's decriminalized, you still have to hide in your home to smoke. That's how decriminalized it is, or more accurately, is not. When it comes to bud recreation, the most recreational aspect aside from smoking is growing. The original proposal for Illinois' recreational decriminalized marijuana law said anyone could grow five plants. I was freaking jumping with joy. I was already in contact with, okay, let's leave it there. But I had a huge plan and I was already forming a kind of co-op of potential growers who would share their strains so we could constantly be introducing new hybrids into our crops as a lack of new types of green gives Aunt Mary a horrible taste with very little THC, the stuff that gets you high. Sure, the original law was supposed to somehow regulate the amount of THC that would be in your plants, but come on, how the hell are they going to do that? How expensive and how many work hours would it take to find crops that you think are growing too strong of weed, then taking it in to be tested, then testing it, then going back to the grower and charging or arresting them, then holding them until they clear bail, then the cost of prosecution and possible jail time? How much time and money and resources will all of that take? So I seriously was not and am not concerned about potency tests, although I did worry that if they could manage them. I'm certain those tests would be done in a targeted manner, aiming at people of color and poorer communities, not on the white-owned corporate stores and the North Shore verbs, because that's what cops do. Of course, in the final bill, that five-plant allowance that everyone could grow was taken away, deleted, leaving the growing only to those medical marijuana caretakers. All other, all other weed will be provided by these new corporate pot shops that will eventually conglomerate and suddenly Starbucks has run all the competition out of town with their new pumpkin latte diesel muffins. Ugh. 
and it gets worse and more corporate, according to MarijuanaMoment.net. Cannabis flower with less than 35% THC could be taxed at 10%. Cannabis-infused products would be taxed at 20%. Marijuana products with more than 35% THC would be subject to a 25% tax. In other words, marijuana substitutes, the kind that can be patented and profited from by corporations, are going to be taxed less than real weed, encouraging the consumption of what may very well be more dangerous marijuana products like vaping and products that you are far more clueless about when it comes to what they contain. But marijuana can't be patented patented, patented, as it is a natural plant, which makes it less profitable to corporations. So corporations may not pursue marijuana cultivation. So it's going to be taxed more. Sure, penalties for possession have dropped considerably with the new law. But did you notice that the new bill also creates a new DUI task force led by Illinois State Police to examine best practices for roadside testing? Sure, roadside testing. I'm certain that's all the new task force created to police marijuana are going to do. Like sobriety tests in poor communities of color are not only about keeping drunk drivers off the road. It's another way to control the immigrant and minority populations. You can bet new marijuana checkpoints will be coming to marginalized communities near you. But don't worry if you're white. You won't see them any more than you see sobriety checkpoints, of which I have never seen one. And I'm certain the new police task force in our decriminalized world of marijuana won't morph into a roaming band looking for people to arrest who are growing weed illegally in competition with huge corporations so they can arrest them and throw them in prison in our new recreational decriminalized world of marijuana. Besides, remember, cops get time and a half when they're in court and incentivizing their citations and arrests. Even when something as great as decriminalized recreational marijuana finally comes around, it's neither recreational or decriminalized, but it sure as hell is legal. Bogged down by the law that discriminates to help the richest, the wealthiest, the biggest corporations, the law that reinforces white dominance over everything, including markets that when illegal were dominated by minorities, Stop kidding yourself, asparagus enthusiasts. This isn't decriminalization. This isn't recreational marijuana. What this is is something entirely different. What this is is the neoliberalization of your favorite smoke, privatized, commodified, and made for easy consumption by the wealthiest players in the markets. And that's why, even when we finally get supposedly decriminalized recreational marijuana, this is hell. If you are an artist or you know an artist, that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our listener listener appreciation and anniversary party next month, Saturday, July 27th. We are still taking submissions, and you can email me your or their art, and we'll definitely consider it for to be part of the 2019 show. Again, email me your art or someone's art you love to chuck at thisishell.com, and they could be part of this year's annual This Is Art show that happens during our anniversary party this year. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well, so if you are an artist or musician, or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in this year's listener appreciation anniversary party and art show at Carrie's Lounge on... Saturday, July 27th. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com. This week's question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? All replies read 
on air during the third hour of this week's show. The winner gets one of the books featured on this week's show, Brian Muir's Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Again, the question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell Flooding that's devastating America's heartland and threatening our food supply. A much-needed discussion on the most devastating of all crimes, rape. How mobility and a sense of place are cornerstones within the institution of racism. And what the hell is really happening in Brazil as our media here in the U.S. is completely ignoring the revolution that may be starting. During the moment of truth, Jeff reads an interview with a monster. We'll have rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media. What we're doing on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker psychedelic warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke, because during listener feedback, we'll tell you how the same listener who found that insanity discovered old writings by Pete Buttigieg that are actually creepier. Yes, creepier than Beto fantasizing about running over children with a car because he doesn't think they deserve the happiness they're enjoying. We want to keep reminding you about our anniversary party. We want to make sure uh, that, uh, oh, well, we want to tell you about the question from hell and uh, how, what listeners, we want to thank listeners for sharing the show online, for sh- supporting the show, telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show. Alex Jerry, Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio so clearly and sadly gnome's gone insane this is hell the waters keep rising and the floods keep flowing over and devastating levees and farms throughout the american heartland here to give us his up close and eyewitness account of what's happening why and what if anything can be done about it when flooding is taking place where the locals are so steeped in climate change denial Returning to This Is Hell, writer Ted Genoway has posted the New Republic article, River of No Return, How Austerity and Climate Change Put Northeastern Nebraska Underwater. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Ted. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. It's good to be here. It's always great to have you on the show. So uh, the first time when I found out that you had an article at the New Republic, the first thing I said to Alex was, Ted Genoways is writing for the New Republic. And then he said, Chris Lehman is the new editor there. What's changed at the New Republic? Well, there's there have been some some shakeups, but uh, I think that the New Republic will still be uh, recognizable to its readers, and and they've been nice enough to to ask me to keep writing for them, and and so uh, you know that's I I, I think it's going to be the same great magazine that it has been, and that's that's certainly my hope. You write about Willard Ruzica, I believe is his name. Is that the correct pronunciation? Ruzichka, but yes. Okay, Ruzichka. I wasn't too sure if he was actually using that very uh, Czech pronunciation. Ruzichka uh, saw it all in a dream. The Niobrara River, which runs a few hundred feet from his family's farmhouse in the unincorporated village of Pishville, Nebraska, had topped its banks, but instead of water edging toward his house from the north, the Dream River, somewhere upstream in the direction of Spencer Dam, had jumped the channel and cut a new course from the south. Water came rushing down the road, uh, stranding the house as the river closed in from all sides. I woke up and was shaking, he remembers now. It was after 2 a.m. midwinter, the braided river through the trees, still thickly iced and unmoving. Was that kind of event something he and everyone in this area always 
always feared, or was it an unlikely thing to happen, so an unlikely thing to dream? Because I'm trying to figure out if this is a fear that is a common occurrence for everyone, and so it's a very predictable dream to have, or was this an extraordinary, out-of-the-ordinary thing to dream? So Willard is a a kind of um, perfect interpreter of the of the landscape there, because he's not only in his 70s, but has lived his whole life on this this one spot um, that is basically where the the Niobrara River and the and Verdigree Creek, which is um, a large north running creek, converge. And so um, Willard understands um, how that landscape has has changed over time. And and one of the things that that he told me that I thought was kind of key was that when he was a kid, he remembered that that the bank of the of the river was about 12 feet from the surface down to the to the where the water was running today it's about a foot to 2 feet um below that surface and a lot of that has to do with the fact that that Spencer dam that's been sitting there um for all of those years and and a little more um has been silting in that part of the river and so what we're seeing is a is a kind of convergence of not only the pressures that that climate change and more extreme weather is bringing but also what happens when you neglect the infrastructure when you build a dam and say you know we'll let this sit here and and do what it what it's doing uh, controlling the the water flow and and producing a little bit of power um but we're not going to do the maintenance to it that um is really necessary to to protect the habitat and to protect the people who live downstream. And, um, I mean, we're reaching a point where there's going to be uh, something of a crisis on, on that front because the, the current infrastructure is old and crumbling, and even if it were uh, updated and, and we're running it at proper capacity, it's probably insufficient for, for what's ahead. And so the the interesting moment that we've entered here is a, is a point where everyone agrees the infrastructure has to be updated. Um, but now there's going to be a conversation about, well, what is, what's required? And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. You're either going to have to decide, um, we don't think climate change is real, um, even when it's directly affecting us, and we're just going to rebuild the infrastructure. Um, or we're going to recognize that there is a changing climate and, and changing weather, and that means that we need to build new kinds of infrastructure. And um, those conversations are going on now, and I, th- I think it's going to be a fascinating moment to see how people who are directly affected, um, who have been far from these policy debates and have mostly kind of put these things out of mind, um, how they're going to confront these issues and, and what they're going to do when they have to decide locally, um, do we believe in this and do we trust the science? You know, Ted, I've got 50 questions written down here for you, and then you say something during the response, and it leads me to a follow-up question. So then let me solve these other questions. So uh, you said new kinds of infrastructure. 
What happens if they replace the old infrastructure with the same old infrastructure? What happens if they go about putting in the new, uh, putting in, uh, replacing the infrastructure with the same old strategies that they'd used in the past? Well, one of the things that that you see along um, the, the the rivers, the Niobrara, the Platte River, the Missouri River, um, is the use of of old um, earthen dams and and levees and uh you know very often the the those dams were kind of reinforced by by planting trees on top of them to hold the 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 soil in place that works great as long as the the river is never running higher than that point and it's also um it works fine as long as there's not ice running on top of the river and what happened this time was not only that the that the water was running much higher than it usually does, but it was carrying huge ice flows. And when those ice flows hit a tree at sort of mid-level, it tears the trees out and takes the dam with it rather rapidly. And so you not only get the the danger that's associated with or or the the, the damage that's associated with the flooding. But you get an, an element of danger where the dam is holding, um, and people have this sort of false impression that the dam is safe right up until the dam goes. And so, this is this is a case where it's it's really going to be necessary um, to do some of the simple things like have the Army Corps of Engineers come in. Um, and be involved in in the planning, designing, and building of these dams, and to overbuild them for what seems necessary right now, um, as we recognize that that these occasional um, surges in the river are are getting higher and and are the product of more extreme rainstorms coming through and snowstorms coming through. That's. Uh, the problem, of course, is that's more expensive. If you if you're involving um, outside engineers, if you're um, building to higher specifications than than you have in the past, you're talking about committing more resources. And right now, um, that means that you're that you're committing more resources and uh, instating local taxes to pay for that, because very often the federal dollars just aren't there. So you write that the Spencer Dam was 92 years old and state inspectors in April 2018 had classified the risk stemming from its disrepair as significant. That would seem then that the Spencer Dam collapse was inevitable. What explains the lack of response by the local community to address the Spencer Dam when the inspectors had said that the disrepair was significant? Well, I mean, that that so that same report said that the that the dam should hold as long as we didn't have um, what they called a rare extreme storm event. Um, the problem is that these extreme storm events are becoming less and less rare. Um, and and a, a fair amount of what I think is, is a kind of useful way of, of thinking about and talking about what's going on here is that for insurance purposes and for uh, federal purposes, there's there's the the floodplain, there's the 100-year floodplain, and there's the 500-year floodplain. 
And the idea is that that 100-year and 500-year uh, floodplains are for the extremely rare uh, weather events, the, the, the cases where this is, this is you know, probably never going to happen in your lifetime. It's, we've only got indications that it reaches this level, um, you know, two times in a thousand years. The problem is that in some of these places in in Nebraska and other uh, middle states along these rivers, there are towns that have seen 500-year floods three and four times in the last 20 years. That's obviously not a 500-year flood anymore. We have to start talking about these things in different terms, and we have to start planning for them. You can't you can't simply rebuild after a 500-year flood anymore without looking back and assessing um, what what was the interval since the last time we had that. And if it's if it's getting to be the point where um, these are these are frequent events and not rare events, you have to plan accordingly. How much are the problems that the American Great Plains, the Heartland, whatever you want to call it, how much are the problems of flooding that they're now facing? How much is that due to human interference with nature? That is not when it comes to climate change, but human mismanagement, possibly, of nature. What role does human human management play in this flooding disaster? Well, I think it's it's significant because, you know, what is... What's happened is that, um, especially in the, the middle of the country, um, along the, the river valleys, we, we built our towns and cities in places that were accessible by river, um, settled at, at, by, by white settlers coming west at a point when that was the best way to, to get goods for your town and to send what you were producing um, back east, often settled, uh, you know, before even the, the the arrival of the railroads, and so that is where the population centers are, and um, and so it's difficult when people say, well, you know, there's a there's a town like a town like Hamburg, Iowa, that has flooded several times in recent years, and really done total destruction to the town. You hear people say, well, why do you keep building there? Um, it's, I mean, it's a reasonable question, but I guess the question that I would have is, are we still going to be framing the question in that way if we're talking about St. Louis or if we're talking about Kansas City? Um, you know, we have large urban centers that, that are built along these places. And so what we've, what we've done in order to protect those sorts of settlements is exactly what you said. We've interfered with those those places in various ways. We've we've built dams, we've built levees to try to control the flow, to direct the flow, and um, you know it it has been successful and and f- for the time that it has been there. I mean, you think about a dam like Spencer Dam being close to a hundred years old. Um, that. That covers a lot of the history of, of Nebraska. I mean, Nebraska only became a state 150 years ago. So that infrastructure was incredibly effective um, for the period that it, was, that it was built in. But it's now time. I mean, it's, it's really way past time to, to update and, and maintain uh, this infrastructure. One of the things that struck me 
doing the research on this, there were, um, as of the time that I was writing, there were about a dozen levees on the Missouri River um, that had failed as as a result of the flooding. Of those 12 levees, at least seven um, had been classified as minimally acceptable uh, for safety when they were inspected more than a decade ago. They had not been inspected since. So it's it's not as though uh, we didn't know there was a problem. There were three others of the dams that hadn't been inspected at all. So if you're not if you're not paying attention to the state of the infrastructure, if you're looking at the state of the infrastructure and seeing that it's that it's crumbling and needs repair, and you decide to just push it off, eventually what you're going to end up with is disasters, and that's kind of where we are now. So it would seem <clears throat> the people of these small towns, or at least their political leader- leadership, chose not to address the inevitable collapse of their infrastructure. Could they avoid, avoid uh, afford to do otherwise? Was it simply cost prohibitive for them to address the problem, or is this more of a political decision? I think it's a combination of the two. I think that that um, the the cost was significant, and obviously it increases over time. The more you let uh, infrastructure stand and um, and become outdated and and insufficient the more costly it's going to be to replace it. Um, but then you start getting into the political debates, of course. When you when you say, well, we need to raise taxes for a, a, a local bond to, to repair this, there are questions of, you know, why isn't the federal government paying more? Why are we not getting more from uh, from the state? Why don't we get... And, and I think often in places like Nebraska, you get conversations about rural rural, urban divide as well, um, where there are people who are in small communities saying, we're controlling the flow, not only for ourselves, but for larger urban centers like Omaha downstream. Why are are our taxes going up instead of taxes being increased um, in Omaha to help pay for these projects? The thing is that this is this is exactly where not only state but but federal um, issues and 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 involvement start to come in. When you're talking about rivers that that not only cross but actually define the border between states, you you need to have federal involvement. And and right now everything is is com- completely gridlocked and politicized. And I mean, the thing that I I would never have guessed and, and still feel most shocked by in this whole um, particular instance is that, I mean, th- this flooding happened, the, the start of it happened in mid-March. The, the funding package um, approving the first federal aid for the people who were affected by this flood just passed this week. It's at a point where it takes three months just to get all of the the everything aligned so that you can pass aid packages for people whose farms and homes have been devastated. And the thing that's especially shocking about that to me is that the, that the people affected were primarily in red states, but the but the obstacles that were being put up were primarily being put up by the president 
by Republican senators, by Republican members of Congress. But as you point out in your article, most Nebraskan politicians, most Nebraskans in general, are Republicans. So do you think that there is any possibility whatsoever that the Trump administration will be held to account for this lack of addressing the problems with the infrastructure in the heartland that has led to flooding and has devastated farmers? I don't know that the change will come from this alone, but I do think that one of the things that's happening, and um, it's starting to be measurable, is that that when you start combining the fact that crop prices are about half what they were just a few years ago, um, and so that income has already been cut, and then you have Trump coming in and saying, we're going to start a trade war with China, imposing tariffs um, on China so that China turns around and says, we're not going to get our soybeans from from the U.S., where you have the market uncertainty of, of Trump saying, we're going to toss out NAFTA, we're going to, um, you know, threatening to impose high tariffs on Mexico and then withdrawing that threat at the 11th hour. Um, all of these things create tremendous market uncertainty. And, you know, we've just passed through the moment where farmers had to make their decision about what they were going to plant for the fall, for October. And a moment like what we just passed through, where everyone had planted corn because soybean prices are so low, but they were having trouble getting out to plant the corn because everything was so wet from the flooding. You finally get the corn in in the ground, and that's going to be. I mean, you're, you've gambled everything on that, and then Trump comes out and says, "Maybe I'm going to impose tariffs on Mexico." Mexico is is the country that imports more American corn than any other country in the world. The panic that went through the the farm community was understandable and palpable. They keep doing that over and over again. And I do think that when you get all of these things working together, where the conditions are are bad, where the the support is little, and then the the markets are are constantly being uh, shocked and and made unpredictable, that 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 does have an impact. and that there's there's a point at which I think people start to say, you know, this is this is not what we need. We need different leadership than this. You write about how, gener- quote, generations of neglect to key pieces of infrastructure have allowed dams, levees, and dikes across the Midwest and Great Plains to collapse of Nebraska's 137 levees monitored by FEMA and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Fewer than half were constructed with federal oversight and support. Not one is currently maintained by the core, why weren't they constructed with federal oversight and support and could have that federal oversight and support made it so these levees wouldn't have collapsed? I mean, I think there's, there's, there's just no question that if, if the, uh, the Army Corps of Engineers had been involved in, in planning um, and construction of some of these levees and dams, that they would have been in better condition and that they would have held. Um, and so that's the thing is that there's, there's, there really is a confluence here of circumstances. I think, you know, it would be possible if we just simply 
um, instead of having infrastructure week over and over again as as uh, an attempted distraction, um, if we actually paid attention to what's going on with infrastructure needs, um, that that certainly the problem would be mitigated, and it would buy us some time to try to um, come up with with better long-term solutions. I also think, you know, one of the people that that I talked to for this story, Justin Moaning, who's the, the mayor of Norfolk, I think that he is exactly right in, in recognizing that often a moment of destruction and crisis is the moment where you can, since there's going to have to be money invested anyway, since there's going to be rebuilding anyway, it's a moment where you have the opportunity to rethink things in, in big ways. And so I, I'm also persuaded by his argument that this may be a moment, and I think it's worth noting, he's a Republican mayor um, of a sort of a mid-sized Nebraska town. Um, but what he's saying is, you know, if the, if the roadways are already torn up and need to be replaced, let's lay high-speed cable um, and, and get so these, these communities finally fully online. Um, and and as part of the rebuilding project, and if if there are um, other sorts of things, you know, places where the power lines have been have been destroyed, let's make it so that the, those power lines can uh, carry power from uh, from wind turbines and and find ways to make these communities greener and and contributors to the solution. Um, while we're in the midst of of this rebuilding anyway. And you point out that he now bluntly insists on applying conservative market economics to issues such as climate change. Can this be taken to a larger scale and possibly adapted? Can this be part of the Green New Deal, despite it being from a conservative economic point of view? Well, I think in in some of these states, this may be the best hope for this uh, this conversation to move forward. And I mean, one of the things that struck me the most was him saying, you know, when when I talk about what's conservative, um, that that means you know being fiscally responsible and you know not being wasteful. And he said, you know, in a state like Nebraska, where we have these tremendous wind resources, why are we wasting those wind resources and not turning that into power? And instead, we're bringing in uh, coal from Wyoming to feed our coal-burning plants. And this is, a, this is a kind of a prime time to have these conversations because a number of our coal plants are also old and in need of either replacement or updating. And he's saying, rather than investing money in in repairing old infrastructure that is also wasteful of of a of a resource that we have right here in Nebraska, why don't we take this opportunity, use the the assistance that we're getting in emergency funds from from the feds, build the infrastructure that we need to to make the most of what we have right here, and you know if if the the way to appeal to people is to say. These wind turbines will will bring your energy costs down. Maybe that's 
maybe that's okay. I mean, I think we, we ultimately have to have the conversations about um, the motivations for doing things and finding some collective sense of doing things uh, in the right way because it's, it's an existential necessity. But I think for getting started and getting some people in, in states like Nebraska over the hump, I think it's okay to say this is, this is more economically viable. It's, it's something that um, is good for job creation within the state. And there's, there's no reason for us to spite ourselves in order to continue to hew to this narrative that, that climate change is a hoax. So why hasn't that worked yet? Because you write in making these changes part of the flood relief conversation, Mayor Moaning harkens back to a conference that he attended last year where Tom Vilsack, the former Iowa governor and secretary of agriculture under President Obama, outlined the challenges in talking to farmers about climate change. Vilsack said that when the U.S. Department of Agriculture offered materials helping farmers prepare for global warming, only 20 percent requested information. When the same materials were offered as guidance on preparing for weather variability, the response jumped to 80%. So are farmers both in denial about global warming and at the same time simultaneously very, very concerned about the increase in extreme weather? Yes. In a, in a word, yes. That, I mean, no one sees the, the effects of, of more extreme weather um, up close than farmers do. And, you know, what what Moaning was telling me reminded me immediately of of a conversation that I had some years ago with Don Wilhite, who was a, a climatologist and started the the National Drought Mitigation Center at the University of Nebraska. He was was the the lead scientist on the the climate report that was prepared at the state level in Nebraska, and what he told me was that when when farmers were brought in. And the the question was put to them directly, do you see the effects of climate change on your farm? The answer was always no, because they understood that that the the political party that they belong to, that the that the culture and the community that they belong to rejects climate change. But if you ask those same farmers, what do you see with drought cycles? They would say they're getting shorter. What do you see with weather extremes? They're getting larger, um, and and so on. You know, what do you see with 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 groundwater resources? They're growing more scarce. All of the indications of climate change were things that farmers were seeing firsthand. But if you ask them to describe it as climate change, they would balk at that. And obviously, what that means is that that we need to find a way collectively to have different kinds of conversations about this. And if that means something as simple as what Vilsack did, where you repackage climate change as extreme weather and people start paying attention and participating, I think, as I say, again, for like for an entry level, I think that, that, is, that that's effective and that there's no reason that, that we should, um, should not be willing to, to do that because ultimately what this is going to take is collective effort. And if, if we have to, to go out and meet some people where they are in order to get them involved, I, I think that that's, that that's 
not only okay, but really going to be necessary. Do both Republican climate change denial and Democrats' inability to convince rural voters of the important role extreme weather plays in their futures, do both those things threaten the U.S. food supply or the politics of both the Republicans and the Democrats, a threat to our food supply and thus our national security? Well, I think, you know, right now what what we've done is essentially place the, the, the majority of our ag economy um, in a position where it is it is entirely dependent on two crops that are rotated, and that's corn and soybeans, and then a, a vast quantity of them are exported to China and exported to Mexico. And if you are in a position where you've made a large swath of your of your economy dependent on this. A state like Nebraska is forty percent of its economy is dependent on the ag sector. If 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 the ag sector collapses, if it takes a significant hit as it seems poised to do, it will have a tremendous ripple effect. Um, you already see it in in rural communities where you say, well, you know, there there are fewer and fewer farmers. Um, so the impact is is mitigated, but the reality is that if the farmer is having a, a down year and and now having had a stretch of down years, um, they're not buying farm equipment, they're not spending money in town, um, they're not buying trucks, they're not buying houses, and all of that affects the larger economy. And when you're talking about small rural communities and those economies, having the people in the surrounding areas not have the, the, the money that they need to spend into the economy to keep it going means that those communities are faltering fast. And yes, I think that that there is a kind of indifference out of the Republicans right now because they look at, at places, I mean, rural Nebraska there were there were many places that that went eighty percent for Trump, and so you can have widespread defections and still expect to carry the majority in those areas, which means that they essentially get written off by Republicans. But the same is true of, of the Democrats. The Democrats look at those areas and say this is an unwinnable um, place politically, and so we're not going to invest any time. We're not going to invest any. Uh, policy efforts into these areas. What I think is exciting about something like the Green New Deal is that we're seeing a, a, a new generation of politicians coming into national politics who recognize that, especially when we're talking about climate issues, but also when we're talking about global food issues, I mean, we can't talk about these things the way that we talk about elections in terms of precincts and in terms of you know, these voting blocks, whether we like it or not, we're all in this together and we're all going to have to find solutions that involve everyone. And if if we decide that we're not going to bring the, the ag community along, we're not going to reach our, our uh, objectives for, for climate change mitigation. And obviously, the impact of that is disastrous. You write, what resources are the Democratic National Committee likely to commit to Nebraska? Where the or when the political pendulum seems never to swing, perhaps in a state consigned to virtual one-party rule, the best hope for tackling climate change emerges from forward-looking Republicans like Mary Moaning. Or perhaps there's a moment of 
Epochal change, simmering, unseen. Unseen, what hopes do you have for some unseen uprising to take place? Well, I think the most interesting thing um, that's come out recently is a, is a study that is underway by a pair of um, political science professors at Iowa State University. They've been looking at the, um, the, the changes in voting patterns between the 2016 and the 2018 elections. Usually, a two-year span is not enough to see any political shift at all. Um, but they actually saw some radical shifts in um, in short-term voting behavior, and where they saw it was um, was mostly in counties that are reliant on the production of soybeans. That, in essence, the people who in 2016 thought, let's roll the dice and we'll go vote for Trump. He says that he's going to change trade deals and make them more advantageous for us, that he's going to be uh, friendly to farmers, that by two years later, they had shifted and were voting for Democrats or not voting at all, one of the two. The the shift in those counties was was gigantic. There were places where they measured that there were 50-point shifts in some of those soybean-producing counties. What that tells me is that as these pressures really hit home, as these no longer become political issues that are, are ideological or are cultural, but become questions of economic survival, that, that people will be persuaded to go with, with whoever is there to offer them a lifeline. It may be that, that the, the best opportunity is, is for Republicans, um, moderate Republicans, because people will feel less like they are um, betraying their, their community or, or their, their past votes. But I think it may also be a case uh, of where people will vote for a candidate or, or a slate of candidates who show up and say, look, the old political divides don't matter. You need to vote for the people who are here interested in, in trying to help you out and making the, the assistance that you get, get fit into a, a bigger picture that helps the whole country. We have been speaking with writer Ted Genoways, who posted the New Republic article, River of No Return, How Austerity and Climate Change Put Northeastern Nebraska Underwater. Ted was on our show a couple of times in the past, including when he was on in 2015 to discuss his book, The Chain, Farm, Factory, and the Fate of Our Food. You can go to thisishell.com and just search on Ted's name, Ted Genoways, and you can find all of our interviews with him. Find out more about Ted at tedgenoways.com. That's G-E-N-O-W-A-Y-S. One last question for you, Ted, and as always, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So you, you quote Jane Klebe, the chair of the Nebraska Democratic Party, and she says rural communities are often forgotten and the recent flooding shows this fact up close and then noting that the entire Democratic field is feverishly campaigning in Iowa, but not one Democratic candidate came to Nebraska, not so far from Iowa, to, serve, right. sur- to survey the flood damage. So are Democrats again shooting themselves in the foot in middle rural America? 
Well, I I can quote my dad here. My dad is is uh, <laughs> f- fond of saying he's a a born and raised in Nebraska. He's fond of saying that when it comes to politics, Nebraskans uh, are are here to remind you that you don't only have one foot to shoot yourself in. So the 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 Democrats, um, I think, are often the same way that that um, that you say, well, a state like Nebraska is unwinnable, but if you don't commit resources, if you don't if you don't spend any time in a place like this, that becomes a self fulfilling prophecy. And what I see right now is how strongly some of the the policies presented by Elizabeth Warren in particular seem to be resonating in Iowa. And I think that that that's the case, not only because the candidates are there and and speaking directly to people, but in Warren's case, it seems to be true because she showed up with specifics, that she didn't just say, we're going to take care of our farmers, we're going to make sure that your crops are are purchased around the world. She had specific plans for it. And a lot of those plans were not just saying, um, here's some of the things that we're going to do to tinker with the system, but saying we need to remake the system so that it's no longer um, really got, got farmers under the thumb of big corporations. We're going to try to make this something where you have more freedom, where you have more say-so, um, and where you're able to flourish based on your hard work and, and your knowledge. And, of course, that resonates with people. But the thing is that if you're going to have a message like that that, that really goes far, you've got to take it to people. And it's, it's got to be more than just prep for the Iowa caucuses. It's, it's got to be a, a region-wide strategy. And it'll take some time. But the alternative is to just always have these states uh, voting for Republicans and and forming a block that that makes the, the the path to national victory difficult for the Democrats. Ted, always a pleasure to hear your voice. Everybody should go to check out all of Ted's work at tedgenoways.com. I cannot stress how great the book was, The Chain, when we discussed it here on our show. Thanks so much again for being back on our show, Ted. Thank you, Chuck. Manufacturing dissent. Since 1996, this is hell. Rape is a very difficult topic of discussion. But the more it is a topic of discussion, the more we can fight against the stereotypes and the inaccurate power relations that stereotypes about the most heinous act of crimes depict. But challenging those assumptions can get you in a lot of trouble, as it did with our next guest whose book on rape led to rape threats. We'll talk in a few minutes to award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author Mitu Sanyal, who has written a new book entitled Rape from Lucretia to Hashtag Me Too. Mitu's first book, 2009's Vulva, The Unveiling of the Invisible Sex, was translated into five languages. And you can find out more about Me Too on Twitter at msanyal, M-S-A-N-Y-A-L. It's time for Rotten History in 1783, 236 years ago. In southern Iceland, a 15-mile-long volcanic fissure called Lakajigar, or Lockie for short. Thanks, Ronaldo, for putting Lake Jagar in the script and forcing me to pronounce 
Lakay Jagar when I could have just said Laki. The fissure underwent a massive eruption, spewing an estimated 128 million tons of lava and poisonous hydrogen fluoride and sulfur dioxide gas. I've always wondered how they do the math to figure that out, but I never wondered enough to look it up, which is kind of sad. The eruption continued for months, with ashes and sand falling from the sky in a thick haze that made agriculture and normal life impossible. Yeah, when agriculture is impossible, normal life kind of goes with it, something we'll be learning in the not-too-far near future. The eruption destroyed 20 villages, killed half of Iceland's farm animals, and laid waste to most of the island's crops, resulting in a famine that killed more than 10,000 of Iceland's 50,000 people at the time. The clouds of volcanic haze crossed the ocean and spread mayhem in Britain, where farm workers dropped dead in the fields. The haze, directed by John Carpenter, continued across Europe and Asia and even reached North America, which experienced its coldest winter on record, with snowstorms in the southern states and floating ice in the Gulf of Mexico. This is essentially the first winter of the United States of America, the winter following the signing of the Paris Treaty that uh, happened on September 3rd. America's first winter was one of the coldest ever, which I'm going to take as an omen. Around the world, tens of thousands of people died of sulfur and fluoride poisoning, although very few converted to communism. Several years of climate disruption followed. Oh, I like that climate disruption. Although my favorite still might be extreme weather, which is also my favorite jazz metal band. The climate disruption caused further waves of illness and starvation that some historians believe may have helped to bring on the French Revolution a few years later. Wait, fluoride leads to democracy, not communism? Did the U.S. go cuckoo for Kennedy because fluoride in the water started turning everyone all liberal? Anyway, in a completely unrelated story, at a memorial service this week, a friend told me Hitler, as in Adolf Hitler, or as the New York Times would identify him, Adolphus Hitler Branau M. in Germany, Hitler, as a friendly gesture to his pals in Iceland, gave them a whole bunch of sheep. The sheep turned out to have scrapie, introducing the deadly disease to the island nation and devastating the sheep population. So maybe the volcano was pre-karma for butting up with Hitler 150 years in the future. I don't know. But I gotta tell you, it was a very moving, touching, and beautiful memorial service. In Rotten History 1966, 53 years ago, in the skies over California's Mojave Desert, five U.S. Air Force planes were flying in close formation. And as this is Rotten History, this will not turn out well. Flying in close formation for a publicity photo shoot for the General Electric com Company manufacturer of the plane's jet engines, when an F-104 starfighter piloted by Joseph Walker banged into the wingtip of an adjacent North American XB-70. So it did turn out to be a publicity stunt, just not a good publicity stunt. The impact caused the pilots of both planes to lose control. The XB-70 went into a spin and crashed, killing its co-pilot, while the pilot survived by ejecting from the craft. Meanwhile, the F-104 exploded in midair, killing the pilot, Walker, who three years earlier had piloted the experimental X-15 rocket plane to an altitude above 100 kilometers, internationally recognized as the boundary of outer space. After the fatal accident, several Air Force officers were forced out of the service for allowing the formation flight and publicity photo session, which had not been authorized 
by their military superiors. Although I am absolutely certain this problem has been outdone by some other FUBAR military-industrial complex BS, but so far for me, pilots dying in an unauthorized flight to make an ad for a military contractor, ending the life lives of two people, including the first person in space, so far for me, that's the epitome of arrogance of putting profits before people of our thoroughly inhumane war machine. That's rotten history. No, no, that, that's really rotten history, and this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's show. This week's winner gets Brian Mears' Year of Lead. Washington, Wall Street, and the new imperialism in Brazil. Brian Mears will be a guest on our show in the final hour of this week's broadcast. Again, the question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a much-needed discussion on the most devastating of all crimes, rape. How mobility and a sense of place are cornerstones within the institution of racism. What the hell is really happening in Brazil, as our media here in the U.S. is completely ignoring the revolution that may be starting. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin reads an interview with a monster. We'll have listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been doing on our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll continue reading late 1980s entries by Cult of the Dead Cow hacker, psychedelic warlord, who you may know as Beto O'Rourke. We want to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. So put that in your calendar. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing the show online and those for supporting This Is Hell at thisishell.com when they click on support. And of course, we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Rape is the most heinous of crimes, often leading others to view those who have experienced rape as being defined by their violation for the rest of their lives. Here to help us have a better and more constructive discussion on rape, award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author Me Too Sanyal has written a new book entitled Rape from Lucretia to Hashtag Me Too. Welcome to This is Hell, Me Too. I'm very happy to be here. Hi. Me Too's first book, 2009's Vulva, The Unveiling of the Invisible Sex, was translated into five languages. And you can follow her on Twitter at msanyal. That's M-S-A-N-Y-A-L. You write, rape is a charged issue for all of us with far more impact on our lives than any other crime. Even murder? And if so, why? Well, first of all, rape was my introduction into the world of gender differences. So I was told, you're a girl, so you've got to be careful. And that was it, basically. Nobody told me how to be careful and what to do. So even before I got any information about what sex could be, sexuality, and, and um, I knew I'm a girl, so I'm an endangered species. And that's what I mean. So rape is the crime that genders us, that gives us a lot of gender information. And most of that gender information is really not nice. Um, it's also the crime that tells us how many genders there are. 
to perpetrators and victims. And we do gender those two. We do know that perpetrators are all men, even though that's not true, and victims are all women, even though that's not true either. But whenever we hear from the media, that's all we get mirrored, so to speak. So um, it ha- is a crime. If Obviously, if you're murdered, that's it. That's the end of it. So, um, But we don't go out into the world being incredibly afraid of being murdered, but especially if you grow up being a woman, when you go out at night, you are always kind of at the back of your mind is, oh, is this safe? Could I be raped here? Which is, as we know, wrong because most rapes happen at home, happen with people you know very well. So we get all this information and a lot of it is wrong. You know, I was just telling this to our previous guest. I wrote down about 60 questions, and then you said something during your response, and I immediately came up with a new question that wasn't in there. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, do want to, I really want to kind of open up new ways of speaking about it, because I grew up with it, and I was also kind of, this is a very serious topic, and we've got to be all very... Um, sad while we're talking about it and so nobody wanted to talk about it, nobody wanted to think about it and when we did we didn't want to go anywhere where it could be dangerous we didn't want to ask any questions like oh um is it right we didn't want to because we had fought so hard for it so the feminist movement had fought so hard for it to be taken seriously and all of this and and i started writing about it because um i want to write about healing and it was kind of like a betrayal. So if you could if you could heal after rape, that was kind of saying, oh, it wasn't so bad after all, which is bullshit. I mean, if my car is stolen, I don't have to cry all the time to show there was really a beautiful car. But if, if I'm raped, I've got to kind of prove for the rest of my life that something awful really has happened. And that's got a lot to do with the discourse about rape that we don't know about. But I kind of wanted to to break this up. And when I was writing the book, because my first book was quite successful in, in the German-speaking world, and everybody wanted to do a second book with me. And I said, oh, yes, I'm writing about rape at the moment. And nobody wanted to go on after that. So um, because they were afraid that victims would feel um, that I was making fun of them. And and, and the opposite was the case. I, w- I did a lot of um, lectures beforehand, so kind of trying out my my thoughts on people and inviting them to give me imp- input and they and quite a lot of people came t- towards me and said this is such a relief i am allowed to see myself as something more than just being the victim of this crime i'm i am allowed to to be a whole person and and to have a history that is not just this this one episode of my life and obviously it can be it can have incredible repercussions and we've got to take them seriously but as with anything else that happens in the world um we are all different so we will react to it in different ways and that is okay and we can say today oh it wasn't a problem and we can say tomorrow actually it was a problem and now i want to deal with it and and that is all right too so we all have to find our individual ways of healing and as a society we've got to provide that and at the moment what we're doing we're doing the opposite we tell that the narrative is oh you're raped and then you're broken afterwards and you'll be traumatized for the rest of your life and that is really black magic you mentioned right at the beginning how uh, there's a binary gender framework around rape. How much Absolutely. do our views on rape, how much are, do they become a hindrance to us understanding other gender identities? Do our, do, does our lack of understanding, does, does the potential for the lack of understanding of other gender identities, is that grounded in our views on rape? I wouldn't go that far, but um, 
It is definitely, when we talk about victims of rape, we immediately imagine them to be well, white women, <laughs> tell the truth. It's not just gendered, it's also, um, it's also racified and all that. But um, uh, we do know that people who are kind of attacked the most in a sexual way are people whose gender is not clear to the outsider. So um, trans people, inter people, those get those are victims of a lot more sexualized violence, of sexual violence. And um, but we don't talk about that. Or it, it even starts even earlier. I mean, loads of babies, if um, if the doctors can't place their, their sex clearly enough, they get operated on. This is a sexual crime. If we, if we talk about sexual self-determination, it should be part of the discussion, but it is not. So um, when we talk about rape, we talk about it in a very limited way. And, and we have this idea all rapists are men and all all rape victims are women because in Germany up until 1997 you had to be a man to perpetrate rape because you had to, a you had to be a man and you had to penetrate a woman you were not married to vaginally that was the definition of rape um, by law and, and we only changed it in 1997 I know England changed it in 2003 and I, I'm not sure about America I think they changed it in 2012 I, I don't know I don't want to go too far but but it is kind of recently so by law only women could be raped and only men could rape and we didn't recognize other genders full stop and and becoming a feminist or being politicized in any way meant that we deconstructed all these gender ideas. So like, oh, girls can't do math. I'm really good at math. Um, we can't parallel park. Parallel parking is no problem. We can't, I don't know, men can't do empathy. Of course they can. Why shouldn't they? Else they wouldn't be able to survive and all this. So basically we deconstructed all this. When I was writing my book, um, a university in Tel Aviv in um, they find out that the myth of the gendered brain, the male and the female brain, is exactly that. It's a myth. We all seem to have human brains. Surprise, surprise. So um, I really thought it would be a big surprise if the real, the last gender difference were a tendency to rape for the one sex and a tendency to be raped for the other. That couldn't be true. So I looked at that and I found out that um, rape had a lot to do with our concept of honor. So the, the, the German word for, for rape um, has to do with violence, but your word is, um, comes from the Germanic root of, of um, theft, so rapper, to, to, to take away, to, to steal. So it was um, the theft of honor. That's um, the literal translation of the word rape, um, to to um, steal a woman or to steal a woman's honor. And um, only women had an honor that was kind of part of their body. So they, they located it in the hymen, which doesn't exist, but that's a different story, or in her status as an honorable wife or widow. So men's honor was kind of dealt with in the on the battlefield or in the job. So it was um, a public honor while while a woman's honor was part of her body. So you could steal a woman's honor. You couldn't you could steal a man's honor but not by raping him. You you could steal it by by I don't know um being better at your job or or, or um kind of um, at war, you could steal someone's honor, but you couldn't steal a man's honor by raping them in that concept. So, um, but the problem of the honor was once you've lost it, then you lost your place in society as well. Your place in society was defined by your honor. That was another reason why um, 
why our idea of rape victims is such a such a limited one because not all women did have an honor so black women didn't um um other colonialists and other non-white women didn't have the honor um and uh, sex workers didn't have an honor so to speak so there are loads i read through all the laws <laughs> and so and they always dealt with oh, can sex workers be raped no they can't and sometimes they couldn't and then five years later they changed the law again and then they couldn't because there had to be something that had to be taken away from them. And that was one of the reasons why, for example, in rape cases, they always look at, oh, have you had sex before? Because then you haven't got an honor. You've already kind of got rid of it anyway, so you can't lose anything. And that was the idea of um, the marital rape exemption, because the woman has given her honor to her husband, so she hasn't got anything to lose. There's nothing. He, he's got her honor anyway. So all these ideas came into play, and and the dangerous thing is that in a way, because you don't you don't know the history, you have no idea about the history. So in a way, honor has been replaced by shame and by trauma. So our discourse around trauma is a bit like this. So if you um, for a while, if you were if you healed after rape, that showed that the honor hasn't been so high. So you had to show for the rest of your life, that you really had an honor that could have been stolen from you. So now when you heal after rape, that kind of shows it wasn't so bad. And Virginie Despont, for example, writes about it in her book, King Kong Theory. And she says that she was raped while hitchhiking and, and she continued hitchhiking afterwards. Why shouldn't she? And people, when she told people, they said, oh, that can't have been so bad, can it? Why? Why does she have to, have to prove anything? How does believing there is shame in rape, how does that affect the way we view rape? What does believing there is shame in rape do to the way we think not only about rape itself, but those who have been raped? Does believing there is shame in rape silence the discussion of rape? Well, first of all, we should understand what shame means, because shame is a social emotion. We've got lots of different emotions, but we always have this idea that shame is an automatic reaction that comes out of your soul. No, shame is defined very differently in different contexts. So what is shameful in Germany? For, I, mean, I couldn't have said Hitler on the radio. You said Hitler just a few minutes ago. I said, wow, he can say this. That, that would be quite shameful in Germany, for example. So we have all these different things that are shameful. And, and then we say, oh, these women feel shame. What we do mean is that we as a society put shame on what has happened. Obviously, you do feel it. I mean, it's, it's um, the social feelings. Uh, it's an interaction between what you feel inside and what's put onto you from the outside. Um, it is very important to say, obviously, um, it is a crime. It is a crime to, to not respect somebody's sexual self-determination, and it can have loads of different repercussions. But the way you experience shame is a lot that has a lot to do with what your society tells you, what has been taken away from you, what what you should feel. You could also feel disgust for the other person. And and if I'm, I don't know, if um, if somebody breaks into my house, I don't feel shame because I've done something wrong because society tells me, no, it's wrong if somebody breaks into your house. It's not my fault. And um, because in this context, it's also something you have been defiled and something's been taken away from you. And now you are less than the person you were before. And, and there are all these concepts about shame. There's also because it is a very intimate fear. fear. So, I mean, sexuality is 
special in so far as um as it kind of it's our bodies and our bodies are kind of our interface with the world so to speak with this life so um there are loads of reasons to feel shame that don't have to be one-to-one connected to society and we can look at them too but a lot of the shame is actually the shame that we as society put on it so we could get rid of that and then there's still the rest and there's also the other things that we feel so um because because it is something we do want to have sex again so um can we can we separate that 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 is a very important discussion um and we we have to face that but um to to say that rape automatically creates shame means that we are we are shamed now and we aren't necessarily you write that hardly any subject is as full of contradictions as rape. What other fear lurks behind every corner yet is at the same time supposed to be as rare as being hit by lightning. Where can you encounter so many crude and anachronistic concepts of human beings that don't resemble the human beings you know? When it comes to those two fears, the only thing I could think even closely approximated to is terrorism, but it's still not even close to the way we feel about rape and rapists. Is the threat of rape any more or less real than the threat of terrorism? Are our concepts of the rapists uh, as stereotypical as they are about terrorists? <laughs> wow, the two big themes of the time. At the moment, um, we do racialize rape. So um, especially in Germany, since New Year's Eve 2016, we have this idea it's only the others. They, they come here to rape our women. It's the Muslims who really rape, which is obviously bullshit. I mean, there was rape before. There will be, there will be rape. It probably will still continue to happen. So... Um, and we look at that in this kind of weird way. And we also have this idea they come here and they import all their misogynistic ideas. Um, and obviously, we have got to look at um, misogynistic ideas in in all kind of organized religion. Uh, we have to look at anything but the idea that one group is more misogynistic than the other. Um, it's just plain wrong. And and we've also got this idea that um, kind of Muslims are like a block. They're all the same. It's part of their culture trait, which is so absolutely wrong. I mean, it is really not part of the culture, full stop. And um, a culture isn't a cult. So basically... Um, Loads of people have very different. Um, they 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 are different. They've got very different ideas about rape and sex and and everything. Like 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 German people have. Like American people have. Like like um, and there are loads of German people who are Muslims as well. So so it's it's all it's all interlinked anyway. So um, I do think that when we look at rapists, we have this idea they are inherently evil people and. And that makes it very different to deal with rape as in in a way of um, prevention. So obviously, when 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 a crime has happened, the victim doesn't have to to look at the perpetrator and think, oh, hmm, maybe it's a poor guy or poor woman. No, obviously not. But um, I look at uh, sexual violence as a spectrum, like everything else is a spectrum. So on one end, there's sexual torture and all this. 
But um, transgression, there is a long, lot of grey area in this as well. When our borders transgressed, when does rape start? And, and we've got to discuss this as a society if we want to talk about prevention. So, um, but if we, if you think rapists are the other, rapists are really evil people. We can't talk about when we have transgressed sexual borders ourselves. So we can't say, oh, I've done something. I want to learn from it because then you're out and you're out of society. So once the the kind of the label rapist is attached to anything, um, we don't treat this person anymore as part of our group. And there was this very, very moving book, um, Fires of Forgiveness. It was by Thordis Elvan, Tom Stranger, and he had raped her um, 18 years ago or 16 years ago, I don't know, a long time ago. And then she contacted him and they had a long, long, long email conversation. And then they met and and they they came to a resolve and there was forgiveness at the end at the end of a long long process and when they came to England for example to talk about their book there was there were loads of protests because people didn't want to have a rapist on a podium they didn't they didn't want to give them a podium and i think no this is incredibly important because this guy's learned something and people can learn from him. And this wasn't a bad person. This was a person who thought, oh, this is my girlfriend. We've been to a party. She's drunk. It's okay to fuck her. And, and obviously it wasn't okay. And and, and, and um, so we we take away the opportunity to learn. And he does um, he does trainings with, with men. And I think he's Australian. And, and he talks to people. And, and this is incredibly important information. People can learn so much from it. And why don't we want to talk to him? Because we touch the label rapists and rapists are the others. Rapists are the monsters. But no, rapists can be anybody. And, and we've got to, especially the idea of, oh, we get, just get rid of them. Even if they go to prison, they will get out of prison eventually. And what will happen then? So um, I know people who do therapy with rapists, and they get a lot of pressure from from people. Saying, oh, how can you? That's awful. And now you cuddle rapists. Now we've got to be. Now we've got to feel pity for them. Yeah, but 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 the thing is, if you don't do therapy with them, they will reoffend. They will come out of prison eventually, and they will reoffend. And and there isn't a death penalty in Germany, for example. So they will get out of prison eventually. So we can't just hope that they will explode. So what do we do with these people if we don't want to look at them, if we don't want to deal with them? So we have to deal with them at universities. If we know about sexual transgression, usually we just expel people and hope they'll go away. But they'll go to another university and something else will happen there. So we've got to address this. You write about being warned of rape is still an inextricable part of initiation into the world of gender. Most girls are told to be careful before they're told anything else about sex, as you were mentioning earlier. But also in your book, you point out how some teenager, teenage boys, before they know anything about sexuality, they're being told that they're inherently rapists and that they have to do something to control this kind of urge that must be a biological urge to rape. So how does being warned about rape before understanding sex, how does being told that you are biologically driven to rape, how does that affect both male and female understanding of sexuality before they even know what sexuality is? I I genuinely believe that at the moment we are kind of living in a world where we we learn sexuality is really dangerous. Be careful. It can take something away from you. Any time it can change and then it will be transgressional. And um, this is a pity because um, in the 60s, 
sexuality was the way to the revolution. I mean, we were all fucking for world peace and all this. And there was narratives. No one is, is more true than the other. But um, it also means that when I grew up, I, I really had the feeling, oh, the world is a dangerous place and I've got to be careful. And and that didn't, I, I mean, it didn't, it didn't help me. Um, but it kind of prevented me doing things I might have done. It prevented me going out into the park at night, which was just glorious, especially in the summer. Um, and I, what I didn't grow up with, and at the moment, um, teenagers grow up with the yes means yes um, teachings. And they're interesting, but they basically tell you you should only have sex if you really enthusiastically want it. If you're not sure don't do it, which is a pity because if I had only had sex when I had been 100% sure, I would have had a lot less sex. And you can only experience your own borders by, by experiencing them, by, by trying something out and thinking, mm, no, I don't have to do it the next time. Um, same goes for alcohol. I mean, people are told, oh, you can only give informed consent if you ha didn't, haven't drank any alcohol. And um, sometimes I have used alcohol very, very consciously think oh i want to do something i haven't done before and I'm, i it is a lot easier when you drink a glass of wine for example it doesn't mean you should <laughs> become an alcoholic to have sex absolutely not but it does mean that um we 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 are also people we can experiment and that is important too and we should value that and um at the moment, there are a lot of consent trainings because we have noticed we, we should do that at schools. And, and uh, it is usually just teaching the girls to say no and teaching the boys to accept the no, which is a really not a happy, happy understanding of sexuality, but it's also just one part of the game. It's also that um, it absolutely ignores that, that girls could want sex actively by themselves. They're not taught to ask for it, for example. Hey, could we have sex? And they are not, I really was not taught to initiate sexuality at all. So I've never, ever made the first step. Not because I'm so absolutely irresistible, but because really I was taught to sit and wait. So I mean, that meant other people could choose me, but I couldn't. So I also have never had the experience um, of doing it in a weird way. So if somebody, because I was insecure, so if somebody asked me in a weird way, I already think, oh, they want to be creepy. No, maybe they are just insecure. I don't know. It is important to experience all the different roles in there. Um, so there's this idea, girls own sex and, and boys want it from them, which is bullshit. We also want in a heterosexual setting and, we, and the discourse around sex, uh, around rape, is a very heterosexual discourse and a very cis-gender uh, discourse and all this. And I'm, I'm talking about the discourse. But um, obviously, girls want to have sex as well and, and they're interested in it. And I was taught the other day by a young man, no, me too, you've got to understand this. When I was 15, I thought about sex all the time. Yes, but so did I. What do you think? Of course, teenage girls think of sex all the time. And, and then you're surprised when you don't think of sex for 10 minutes. And wow, am I getting old? What's happening here? And you can get really worried about it. Um, so it's important to address that too. And it's also important to teach boys to say no. Because that's I do quite a lot of consent workshops. And, and, and the boys really have no idea when they don't want to have sex. They are absolutely alone there it's basically and they tell themselves oh no i'm a boy i should be happy about this i should always be up for it and and we don't teach boys to find out about their own borders they're only taught to find out about the girls borders and and even when when they are hurt we i mean 
just in a in a general way. So if if they're ill, we tell them man up and 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 don't cry, boys don't cry and all this. So we teach them not to have empathy for themselves, but we suppose we we um, expect them to have a lot of empathy for girls, and that doesn't work. I mean, you can do it, but only for a while, and after a while, you get really resentful. Why should I have empathy for you if I am not allowed to have it for myself? So there are all these problems, and I try in my workshops. I try to first of all get them in touch with their own feelings. What do you want? And most of the time, even with no means no or yes means yes, people don't know what they want. They 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 have all these ideas of what they have to give and what they have to perform and what they have to be and just bring them in contact with what do you feel? And it's okay to feel what you feel. And it's not. I mean, especially boys are sometimes afraid of, oh, I want something and that's evil because if I if I want to touch a girl, that's taking something away. No, it is an offer. You don't doesn't mean that you will get it, but but just look at your sexuality in a friendly way. It's 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 nice. It is, it is okay to have feelings and desires. That's a good thing. You write the caricatures we encounter in speaking about rape resemble gender stereotypes in such an exaggerated form that it's hard to recognize them as members of the same species. As soon as we use the R word, back go the clocks, and it is forever 1955. The propaganda in the Cold War of the sexes states that female sexuality is an area under threat and must be protected and defended rather than explored and enjoyed. What happens to a relationship? What is the effect on a relationship when the man believes his role is to protect the woman? What impact could that have on him or her separately as well as a unit together? Because this is a problem, an issue I have. I was taught by my father that your job as a man is to protect the woman you are with at all times. So what happens to a relationship when it has that kind of relationship? First of all, we all need to be sometimes mothered, so to speak, in a relationship when we're ill. And, and so sometimes it's nice if we protect it. But we are only at some moments. And, and if you say, oh, you've got to protect the other person, it means you haven't got a relationship on eye level. You've all, always got a relationship to somebody who's in some way inferior because they can't look after themselves. And you've got to do that. And you've also got to read their minds. What do they need? What do they want? And that's, I, I do love the Me Too debate. It's incredibly important. It's important to talk about it and, and, and. But some aspects of it, and only some aspects of it make me nervous, especially when it's got this um, undercurrent of, oh, you've got to protect women from sexuality. no. We all want sexual self-determination. That is something else. I, I really don't want to be protected. And people who protect me usually don't take me seriously. And it's also, um, and, and I don't, I mean, if I have to protect somebody else, they're either my children or, or they're my pets. And I don't want a pet as a, as a partner, so to speak. Um, but it's also, it all harks back to the um, kind of steam boiler model of human sexuality. So there was this idea in the late 18th, early 19th century um, that um, men had this um, hot semen and, and uh, it was like a steam boiler. So it had to be ejaculated out, out, out. And if, if you kept it in, the men exploded, obviously. So, and, but as um, masturbation was unhealthy for the spine and, and your, your, your brain got mushy and all this, um, these ideas. So you had to ejaculate into a woman. So men were driven by the hot sperm to, eject, sperm to ejaculate into any women they met. So any women that wasn't um, on a tree by the count of three, they had to jump on. Um, and, and this is where the idea of the short skirt comes from, for example. So women had to, with all their uh, behavior, with their dress, with, with 
any signs they they gave the man. They had to show that they were not interested, else the man couldn't do anything else. He had to jump her. That was this idea that men always wanted and women oh no. Um and and this is this is a this is a quite recent idea because before women were driven by their desires. Men was was rational sex for all this time and, and women were driven by their desires, not for sex obviously, but for nice things for, for chatter and, and, and tittle tattle with their girlfriends and all this. So um suddenly women had to be the the moralistic um um, the kind of guardian of the moral flame, which is interesting because before women were, were supposed to be amoral, they were Satan's spur and, and they let Satan into the world. And so um, just to look at it, how, how the paradigm shifted there is super interesting. Um, and we have kind of questioned that in relationship to women. I mean, if you just look at the slut walks and everything, it is a dress is not a yes, and and we can we can be outgoing. That doesn't mean that anybody has a right to us and all this. But we haven't questioned the steam boiler model for men. I mean, you, you if you measure the temperature of your sperm, it will be all right. Um, you won't explode, and 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 masturbation isn't a problem and all this. So obviously, it's not that men want to basically fuck every woman around that's not true either but in the in the rhetoric around rape this is how we treat men i don't think you've got a right to any woman really does anybody think that and if they think that they must have been taught that there must have been a long because that's the other thing um there's been quite a lot of studies done on rapists and and we always think oh it's so nice for men to rape and then they feel really strong and that is not the case um most rapists and their studies only done on men experience some kind of sexual dysfunction during a rape four-fifths of all rapes um, have got some kind of sexual dysfunction because the body obviously isn't that keen on transgressing borders. We don't want that really. So, And that is super interesting. So it's not the natural thing for a man to do and you've got to stop him from it. No, this is not the case. And it is not good for relationships either because um, if he's got to be protected, then how can we be autonomous uh, autonomous um, actors in all other strata of society? And for a long time, that was one of the reasons women weren't allowed to vote, because it was, oh, they've got to be protected, and and they're too weak to do this, and, and also because they thought that <laughs> a quarter of all women would become um, kind of um, mentally ill afterwards because it's a really hard job to, to make a cross on a ballot paper. You can't trust them to do that. Their brain is just not built for it. You write, rape is the most gendered of all crimes, also the crime that genders us the most. The way we think about rape is intimately and disturbingly related to the way we think about sex, and that encompasses the meaning of sexuality and of gender in equal measure. If we can have a better understanding of our sexuality and gender by considering the way we think about rape, should I or any one of our listeners have a discussion with my partner or their partner about rape and what it means? Could that lead to us having a better relationship as we will have a better understanding of our own gender and sexuality? Would you suggest that anyone listening right now should have a discussion of rape with their partner no matter either gender identity? Well, first of all... um because we usually don't speak about rape, we do tend to reproduce 
all the old stereotypes once we start talking about it because they haven't got new ones. That is the problem. But the other problem is the brain is so incredibly cooperative. So as soon as we start um, um, just addressing gender stereotypes, the brain will, will give it to us. Um, there are loads of tests done, especially mass tests on women, and um, same questions, two groups, and one group was addressed as women. Oh, you're women, and you're so multitasking, and you're so good at empathy and all this. And they fared really worse than the other group who weren't um, addressed as women. So the brain, even with, with positive gender stereotypes, the brain knows, oh, if I'm multitasking, I can't be good at maths and all this. And um, similar similar tests were done on men, and then there were empathy tests, and they were called empathy tests. And one, for one group, same question as the other group, it was called leadership tests. So, and and when it was called a leadership test, suddenly the men could do all the empathy. They they could read the other per, uh, person's body language and all this because because it wasn't called an empathy test. So, um, if you if you speak about rape, we you, we tend to reproduce um, gender roles. Quite a lot of discussions about rape, and I've um, I'm part of the feminist movement in Germany. I'm part of the left wing movement, and um, I know so many discussions that have gone incredibly wrong because you're suddenly on the other side of a chasm, you're on the other side of a divide, and the other is the kind of enemy, and um, it is really really difficult. And you can. Um, you can learn about empathy and, and all this, but I do know that even the men talked about their own experiences with um, sexual borders that have been transgressed and suddenly people became really angry and said, yeah, but it's many women who get raped and now you want to monopolize the discussion. And and it is very, very hurtful when you're opening up and somebody tells you, oh, now, now you just want to monopolize the discussion. And it is a, it is a loaded subject, but... What I do absolutely think is we could talk about consent, we could talk about our sexual wishes, but we can't. It's really difficult because we are told not to say what we want. And um, I, I went to a workshop with Betty Martin the other day, who's absolutely impressive and amazing. And, and so we just um, made a list of things. What do we do instead when we can't say what we want? How do we get what we want instead? And they're all this, oh, we give our partner what we want and hope that they will give us the same thing or um Oh, we will kind of um, manipulate them into doing it, or we just choose another partner and hope that they can read our minds better and all this. So um, loads and loads and loads of things. Um, and that is really, really interesting how hard it is for us because we grow up and we're taught, don't make a fuss. Oh, don't be so difficult. And suddenly, when it's about sexuality, we are supposed to communicate very clearly. And most of the time, it goes well. I mean, most sex is consensual. If you read any kind of report if you read the media at the moment it sounds as if most sex is rape but that's not true most sex is consensual but if it isn't we haven't got any repertoire to talk about it and to communicate about it so i would start really with um discussions about our wishes our needs um and 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 go from there and not from where it's gone wrong <laughs> and this is more difficult but obviously um that's the other thing. There are so many places in society where we can talk about our experiences. It has changed with me too. At the moment, we can do it, but it's kind of, it feels like this is a window that is closing slowly. But before all our needs to talk about it, we focus them on a court. So um, we, we hope that um, if anything had happened, the court would basically look at us and say, you can't do this to this person. But this is what doesn't happen in court. Court cases do function a very, very diff different way, and they just 
try to find out if you can prove something. It's the last thing you need if you've been a victim to have to prove that something has really been done to you. It's, it's psychologically awful. So you've really got to be prepared for that. And, and that's what the rape crisis centers do. They prepare you for what's going to happen. Then you can decide. Then you can make an informed decision whether you want to go through with it or not. Um, but um, suddenly with Me Too, that this, um, people could for example, call into talk shows and talk about their experiences. And they could be kind of sure that people would listen and believe them and listen in a warm and open way. And that is incredibly important too. We need also this kind of um, communal spaces to kind of also grieve for what's happened. And that is very important too. And and we need positive stories as well. We need all these stories where sex was consensual and why it was consensual and why it was good and, and how we could speak about it. And and um, at the moment, we, we have got one kind of story, but we need all of the stories. So can the court of public opinion, as in the case of the hashtag MeToo movement, can that bring about more justice to rape the people who have experienced rape than actual courts of justice? Well, well. first of all, I don't think um, that the court of public opinion can bring justice, but it can bring empathy. And that is very, very important. And a lot of people who go to court, um, it's not about that. This is what the rape crisis centers told me, that most people, when they ask them what do you want, they want somebody to look at them and say, what this person has done to you was wrong. And it's not about, oh, how long will the jail sentence be or any of this. It is about being seen and, and basically being seen as as being wronged, um, and 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 the perpetrator to see that I, I shouldn't have done this, and and in the best case to be sorry. If that happens um, a lot, it makes healing a lot easier. Doesn't mean you can't heal if it doesn't happen, but it is it is really an enormous relief. Um, so um, we can give empathy. We can see people. We can see their their grief, and they don't have to prove anything to us. They don't have to bring evidence or, or witnesses or any of that. Um, the problem is that we as a society haven't learned how to deal with perpetrators at all. So the court of public opinion tends to either be in denial and say nothing has happened, nothing has happened, or they tend to go for the perpetrator and, and like, I mean, look at Harvey Weinstein. Suddenly everything was okay. You could be anti-Semitic. You could fat shame him. You could do anything with him. And, and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't like what he's done, but I, I really have no problem with his body shape or with his, with his, I don't know, being a Jew. Brilliant. So that is that is not the problem. So why do we go for that? So suddenly we dehumanize perpetrators because as a society we have all this anger. But that doesn't help us. Dehumanizing anybody doesn't help us anyway. And it won't make it possible for people to change. And that's the other thing. Um, quite a lot of rapists, and, and that is what, what therapists have told me, they hate themselves. It, either they're in denial or they hate themselves. And they say, oh, I'm, 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 I'm scum of the earth, all this. So um, you can't change when you hate yourself. You can only change when you say, I'm, I'm a good human being who's done a terrible deed to someone, but I'm genuinely a good human being and I want to change and I want to atone for this. And um, if you can't love yourself, you can't change. And that is incredibly important too. The problem with courts is really, um, the idea that courts bring justice is just erroneous. Courts are a kind of um, mechanism of the state to prevent or to, to punish the kind of extremes. We do know that in, not, not all crimes 
ever make it to court. We do know that, and we don't we don't want that. This isn't possible. This isn't doable anyway. So we've got this wrong idea that the courts bring justice, which is probably a lot to do with all these daytime TV shows where the, where these kind of judges go back and do some detect, detective work or so. So um, even if you if you go to court and and um, and report a rape and then. Um, the perpetrator isn't sent to 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 jail doesn't mean you haven't been raped it just means it couldn't be proven in this court of law law sufficiently and that's all it means it doesn't mean anything so um i i do think we should view courts for what they are they are an instrument but a kind of blunt instrument but on the other hand I wouldn't want them to be a lot more, but because that's the other thing. There are some people who say, oh, courts of law, they should really, now the perpetrator has to prove that they haven't done it. And and that would be unconstitutional. That would that would really frighten me. And I do believe that um, the presumption of innocence is kind of a bedrock of society. It also means that quite a lot of people who are guilty will go free. And, and that is the price we've got to pay for it. But it also means that usually innocent people will not be sent to jail. Quite a lot are still because we've got a lot of bias. We've got, for example, a lot of racist bias and so on. Um, but it, it is a kind of safeguard against that. And the other thing is, and, and that's my, my private view, I don't think that jail improves people. I mean, um, half of the time, it's not that they go there to learn and come out as reformed people. They just go there, and and some quite a lot of them are raped in jail as well. So if you want to change the system, you've got to look at it in a different way. But um, I, I wouldn't I, obviously um, it's fine that people can go to to court and and report rapes and all this. But my main interest is in let's look at prevention. What can we do as a society for prevention and there are loads of things we do know, and, and higher jail sentences don't prevent a single rape. There's a lot of study gone into that. So what does prevent rape? Learning to have empathy does prevent a lot of rapes. Also, um, gender stereotypes. People who do believe in gender stereotypes do tend to believe in rape myths as well. There's been studies done on that. And the interesting thing is the people who did the study only did the study on men. So... Um, even they had a gender bias. Even they were gender blind to that. Um, another thing we do know, and there's loads and loads of um, evidence for that, that um, there are more rapes in the military than in civil society. As soon as the military goes to war, there are even more. I think it's threefold or fivefold. Um, and uh, not just um, raping the victim, it's also raping your comrades. So, um if we got rid of the military, there would be a lot less rape. If we demilitarized society, it would be really, really good. This is not the discussion at the moment. And that would be brilliant if we talked about that as well. Also talking about consent, just having a real idea what does consent mean, not just with sex. I mean, we're living in a society, we are a compromised society. So the idea is oh, everybody makes a compromise, everybody gives up something, and then we meet in the middle. So if I want sex with you and you don't want sex with me, we have a little bit of sex. Would that be better? Of course not. Um, and the idea of a compromise society, uh, of a of a consent society is that every every party first says very clearly what they really want because half the time people don't even know what they want they don't say what they want and then you don't have to get what you want but then you've got to basically take the other person's 
wishes um, as important as their own. So not more and not less. So basically, okay, they're all on a par and now we can break it down because usually there's something else that will make us all happy. But we've got to find this third thing that make, will make us all happy. And then this is usually incredibly stable. So it is a lot quicker to come to a compromise, but usually the compromise will break along the way. People will get resentful. It doesn't work after a while. But if you come to a consent, it's usually very stable. It takes longer, but you, you've got a lot more out of it. I've got one last question for you, Me Too. We've been speaking with award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author, Me Too Sanyal. She has written a new book entitled Rape from Lucretia to Hashtag Me Too. And you should check out the book, not only because it's very, very informative and very eye-opening, but she has her own version of a Bechtel test called a Sanyal test that you'll have to learn about from reading her book. And we've had conversations in the past, recently with Sahalia Abdelali, author of What We Talk About When We Talk About Sex. And a few years ago, we were talking with Leslie Udwin about her documentary, India's Daughter. You can find all of those as well as finding our interview, if you didn't hear the whole thing, with Me Too at our website, thisishell.com. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Me Too, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You mentioned how you wrote an article for the German publication Taz, and in it you discussed a conversation (laughs) with a group of rape victims who did not like the term victim, so they came up with a German word, Erlebende, which means, apparently, people who have experienced sexual violence. In that piece, you wrote specifically with your co-author, Marie Albrecht, of course the word is not supposed to replace victim. If you decide victim or survivor, survivor is the right way to describe yourself, then that's the way we will call you. Yet you point out that a couple of days later, Feminist Magazine, Emma, published an article titled Victims Aren't Allowed to Be Called Victims Any Longer. Even the editor of the publication where your article was posted ran a counterpoint. You describe that uh, a week after the article was published, Taz editor Simone Schmolak uh, wrote a counterpoint arguing that victim was the best of all possible worlds words and that would have been it if a feminist blog hadn't published an open letter accusing me of victim blaming because the new term suggested that Rape was a great experience, like going to the swimming pool. You were attacked for relaying that the group had come up with a term literally meaning people have experienced sexual violence as an alternative to victim. You received emails and messages from people who actually threatened you with violence, even threatening you with rape. To you, what explains that reaction of the threat of rape apparently meant to defend those who have experienced rape? Well, first of all, um, it has always been a kind of feminist um, agenda to say, hmm, victim is a passive word, and that was the reason why the, why the term survivor came up, as, as um, somebody who's actively surviving, not just a passive victim of rape. Uh, in Germany, we um, had the word victim of rape after the Second World War, and we, we wanted the word to basically um, say that the victims of the Holocaust and the victims of rape were not in any way guilty of the crime that had been perpetrated on them, to them. And so, um, so um, we came up with a word that means, in translation, it means sacrifice. So um, opfer means a sacrifice in German. The, the word, German word for victim means sacrifice. So the sacrificial victim, so to speak, the lamb of God who's innocent. And um, 
This is a difficult term because it also means you've got to be innocent to, to be a real rape victim. And I think you can be a bad person. You should still not be raped. So, um, But obviously, there are a lot of legal um, rights attached to that word by now. So I wouldn't, would not take it away. No way. Obviously, you should have those legal rights. But if you are described as a victim, the idea is that you've always got to be passive and you will always stay a victim. And there are loads of different terms. Um, and we tried at the, in, in Germany over the last 30, 40 years. Loads of different terms have been tried out. And one was situational victim. So you are a victim at that moment. That doesn't mean it's your identity for the rest of your life. And um, those people who came to me and said they really feel very strongly about it, they have the feeling as soon as you utter the word, you're put in a kind of drawer and, and the drawer is shut and you can't get out of it. You always have to stay that victim. And um, I feel quite strongly about it. Also, the term survivor in Germany is difficult because it is usually only used for survivors of the Holocaust. You hardly ever use it for other, other victims of other crimes. So... Um, Quite a lot of people don't like to use the term survivor in Germany. And that group of, um, of young women, um, they, they said, but it wasn't, it wasn't like death. It wasn't a near-death experience. It was different. And, and um, they didn't want it to sound like a near-death experience because it's always, oh, it's a fate worse than death and all this. And they wanted to separate it from that. One of the reasons why so many people threatened to, to rape and kill me, but, but basically rape me to death, was that um, uh, it was picked up by the right-wing media. And most of the and and it was kind of it was an orchestrated shitstorm. It was by um, on the RFD websites, on the Pegida websites, and they all published my my name, a picture of me, my telephone number, my email address, and my address, my real address. Um, and and so people started writing in, and and they said that I had said that. Um, in my in my home country, which is obviously Germany, but they meant my, the country my father was born. They meant India. Rape was legal, which it isn't, but doesn't matter. They didn't know about that. Um, so I would uh, I would tell German women it would be a great thing to be raped by by refugees, and that was part of the right wing propaganda at that time. The right wing propaganda against refugees, because my colleague Marie. Um, as you just mentioned, she is a white German woman, and and she didn't get any of the of that. And so basically, the, the shitstorm was only aimed at me because it was used as this anti-immigrant propaganda. There's also um, uh, there's also one small part of the feminist community, and and for whom this idea of being a victim is incredibly important, and really not all of them. And I do understand um, that you want to be seen and you're hurt. And, and in that, I was helpless in that moment. I absolutely understand that. But uh, and because they fought so hard for this recognition to kind of accept that other people don't want this would be similar to, to accepting that they weren't victims. And, and I have met a couple of people who have felt triggered by it, and I do understand that, and I do feel really sorry for that. And it was also really a misunderstanding of my article. I really didn't mean everybody should be called um, somebody who's experienced rape, but when you say somebody who's experienced rape, it, it opens because an experience is individual again. You ask people, and how did you experience it? Was it the worst thing that happened in your life? What, because some people told me, oh, it was awful, but when my, my boyfriend cheated on me, that was worse, which I really thought that was really brave to say this. And, and I got loads of 
different stories so they can tell me how they have experienced it and I don't put my interpretation on it. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being on our show. We've been speaking with award-winning broadcaster, academic, and author, Mitu Sanyal, who has written a new book entitled Rape from Lucretia to Hashtag Me Too. You can follow Me Too on Twitter at M-S-A-N-Y-A-L, M. Sanyal. Thank you so much for being on our show. Really a fantastic conversation. This has really been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell where you live and your ability to get from here to there, to drive from one community to another without being interrupted by the state, plays huge roles in the way we identify race. And it, and it often leads to an erasing of people of color from our history. We'll learn how place and mobility have been racialized when we hear from Chicana and Chicano Studies scholar Genevieve Carpio, author of... Collisions at the Crossroads, How Police and Mobility Make Race. Genevieve is Assistant Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. And you can follow Genevieve on Twitter at Jenna Carpio. That's G-E-N-A-C-A-R-P-I-O. Alex, what have you been up to on social media? Oh, I'm sweating after that interview. <laughs> I w- By the way, everybody, I got to tell you, if we did have video streaming in here, it would be fantastic because watching Alex lunge for the seven-second delay over and over again, and if you're listening over the air right now and you're like, hey, that was kind of a weird, choppy interview. There was something going on in there. That was because Alex was constantly hitting the second second, seven-second delay because you can't say Hitler over the air in Germany, but you can say the F word, the S word. The I mean, She was going through it all. So <laughs> it was very entertaining. And if you want to hear the whole unedited version, you're going to have to go back to thisishell.com and listen to it later. Uh, Facebook this week, I posted a really good Reagan Davis interview that people, or uh, post that people really liked a lot from Medium called The Ungodly Privilege of vote blue no matter who and then uh, maybe slightly related to that after that I posted a piece by Aditi Guha uh, titled anti-choice Democrats made Louisiana's near total abortion ban possible at Rewire News (laughs) interesting when you just happen to vote for any Democrat what ends up happening there (laughs) sure is Um, also a that's great writing by the way at Rewire that piece yeah I like that piece a lot and uh, we we're going to cover abortion stuff we've been working on that uh, for the last couple weeks so yeah we're going to get we're going to be talking about that pretty soon also I shared a really good Kate Aronoff piece called the European Far Right's Environmental Turn. And then uh, also people got real mad at a Black Agenda report piece that I shared by past guest Danny Hyphon titled, Elizabeth Warren wants green bombs, not a green new deal. Uh, and then I just love how there's so much great criticism coming out right now of all the different Democratic candidates from the left. And, you know, it, it's really, there's really, really, they're, they're creating a very high standard. And I think that's, I think that's really fantastic. I'm beginning to think no one should be president. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on Twitter, I actually posted, I've been posting more and getting more suggestions for the listener appreciation month in July. So if you have, uh, as a reminder, if you have any suggestions for us, get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook at this is hell radio or email me Alex at this is hell.com. All right. So, uh, it's time for listener feedback that has been sent to us at Chuck at this is hell.com July's shows will have only, as Alex was just saying, only listener suggested guests. Uh, so we keep getting suggestions like this one from this one's from Andy, the listener who found writings by Beto O'Rourke when he was call, going by the name Psychedelic Warlord as part of Cult of the Dead Cow, which was featured a uh, hacker group that was featured on our, sh- our show several times in the 1990s. This time, 
Andy, Alex, you're going to love this, has the goods on Pete Buttigieg. Hey, Chuck and Alex, been loving hearing you read the perfect turds of wisdom from Beto O'Rourke over the past few weeks. At this point, if you don't get to the rest of them, that's fine. There's only so much hell a person can take after all, though it sucks to learn that he liked the dead milkman. I hear Pete Buffin Buchu Buttigieg wrote for the, that's his writing wrote for the Harvard Crimson while he was there such an inspiration that yet another politician went to Harvard though I haven't yet read any of his stuff and I can't say if there's anything good here's a link if you're interested Andy then goes gives us a link to Pete Buttigieg's college paper writing Andy adds oh my god you gotta read the one called Presidential Poetry. So, with the deepest gratitude to Andy for yet again finding wacky stuff written by presidential candidates when they were in their 20s, I offer unto you the Pete Buttigieg poem posted in the Harvard Crimson on October 14th, 2003, titled Straight Talk. You thought I was a Texan. No, I cannot tell a lie. My tax cuts plainly show that I'm no ordinary guy. The blue blood's in me through and through, and not just because of Yale. It's Kennebunk, Harvard, Andover. Now there's my tale. You thought I was a centrist. Well, that's your fault, not my own. You should have realized it when I turned up at Bob Jones. Clearly a reference to George W. Bush. Andy then comments, what the heck is going on with these fifth-tier Democratic candidates and awful poetry? Anyway, the reason I wrote was to suggest a guest, Ben Burgess, author of the newly published Zero Books title, give, give them an argument, logic for the left. I haven't read the book yet, says Andy, but it's pretty short, and I've heard some of his interviews and YouTube talks, which were fairly good and entertaining. Keep giving him hell, Andy. And we got to do something for you, Andy, because <laughs> you keep delivering with excellent content. And we'll definitely look into Ben Burgess. Uh, Tom always sends us great guest suggestions. And we featured many of his suggestions on the show in the past. And if we use your suggestion, suggestion during Listener Appreciation Month, next month in July, we'll send you a free surprise mystery gift or give it to you at the anniversary party on July 27th. The gift is a mystery and a surprise because it is still a mystery and surprise to me in that we haven't decided what the surprise mystery gift will be. Tom writes, Hi Chuck Ilex, doesn't it seem like Shoshana Zuboff should have been a guest on This Is Hell by now? She wrote this stunning hellish book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future. At the new frontier of power. Tom, we've actually been reaching out to uh, Shoshana, trying to get her on the show for some time. I don't know what the state of that is. Alex, what was the deal with Shoshana? Did she ever reply to you? Was it the publisher that was making it so we couldn't get her on the air? What was the deal there? Yeah, I'm not hearing back from that publicist. So we should just contact her directly, man. We should just. Yeah, I'll give it a try. Yeah. John has a guest suggestion. I think you should try to get Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg on your show to talk about the global climate crisis. She seems wise beyond her years and has inspired millions of people, young and old, to at least care a little more about the imminent demise of humanity. I also think Alexandria Ocasio Cortez would be a good guest to have on your show. Signed, John in Scottsdale, Arizona. So make it easy on Alex, why don't you? I've been trying Greta Thunberg, actually, for a while now. And you've been working on AOC, too? 
No. <laughs> Alex will try uh, both. But the weirdest thing happens when we have famous people on the show. Nobody listens. And although we have a policy that's more of a guideline to never have a politician on the show ever, even though I might break that for AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, but every single time we have a politician on, nobody tunes in or downloads the show. I can only guess our listeners tune in to hear the people they can't and don't hear anywhere else. But I appreciate the female guest suggestions because the vast majority we are getting of guest suggestions for next month are male guests. And I'm really, really, really tired of listening to old white dudes. It's driving me nuts and I don't want to be doing it all next month. So please, people... Send us listener suggestions for guests that are not old white dudes. This week's question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? All replies right on air. Following our next guest, this week's winner gets one of the books that's going to be featured on this week's show. Brian Mears, Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Again, the question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the next hour hour or later after our guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, how mobility and a sense of place are cornerstones within the institution of racism. And what the hell is really happening in Brazil as our media here in the U.S. is completely ignoring the revolution that may be starting. During the Moment of Truth, Jeff reads an interview with a monster. We'll tell you what we've been up to on the Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. We might get to the writings of Beto O'Rourke when he was a hacker going by the name of Psychedelic Warlord for the Cult of the Dead Cow. We will continue to remind you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's Lounge 2251. West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. Of course, the question from hell. We want to uh, thank some listeners for sharing This Is Hell. Thank some others for supporting This Is Hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of our show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. Where you live and your ease of access to get from here to there play a role in defining your racial identity, whether you know it or not. Here to explain the roles mobility and place play in institutional racism, Chicana and Chicano Studies scholar Genevieve Carpio is author of Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race. Welcome to This is Hell, Genevieve. Thank you so much, Chuck. I'm excited to be here. And hello to Alex again, too. <laughs> Genevieve is Assistant Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. And you can follow her on Twitter at Gina Carpio. That's G-E-N-A-C-A-R-P-I-O. You write Mexicans are among the many diverse groups that experience their racialization through permissions and prohibitions on their mobility, but never without contest. And you mentioned Danny Flores in 1993 going to the Rendezvous, a yearly celebration of Route 66 cruising heritage held in Santa, San Bernardino's downtown. But Flores and his friends, who drive low riders, were no longer allowed to be part of the official Rendezvous celebration downtown. 
So as you point out, Flores and other Mexican-American lowriders had gathered away from the site of the rendezvous, which lowriders had participated in since the festival's founding in 1990 to protest the festival's newly enacted lowrider ban. Festival officials described the exclusion of lowriders as protecting the event's authenticity. However, Flores attributed it to discrimination to draw attention to the festival's fabricated placement in downtown San Bernardino, a mile away from the iconic highway. He chose the city's historically Mexican west side for the lowriders gathering on what Flores has called the real Route 66. It was here that Route 66 carried travelers through California and that Mexican cruising culture had thrived for decades. So they don't want lowriders because they're not authentic to the history of Route 66. (laughs) But we're going to hold the event honoring Route 66 away from the actual location of Route 66. What role did Mexican-Americans play in the history of Route 66 that is being erased in the kinds of festivals like the Rendezvous Festival? That's a great question. And I love that you pointed out the irony, right, behind these questions and debates over what is authentic Route 66 heritage and history. Um, So in terms of what role Mexican-Americans played in Route 66, um, there's a very strong history there, um, particularly in San Bernardino. So the route itself often traced other major travel corridors. So it's called the Main Street of America often because it went through whatever the primary road was and the neighborhoods that it passed. It also tended to follow uh, rail lines, for instance. And if we look at the rail industry, um, very often, a large segment of that labor, particularly in California, was Mexican origin. Um, and in San Bernardino in particular, there was a neighborhood that developed around the lines of the Santa Fe. And this neighborhood was called Mount Vernon. Um, and in that neighborhood, it was both predominantly um, Mexican and Mexican-American, although not um Exclusively so, it was a multiracial space where many of um, the immigrants and people of color who entered this region lived um, due to restrictions on other neighborhoods. So they developed a rich culture around um, the routes and travel by automobile um, more generally. So it's in places like San Bernardino that we see the development of Mexican-American cuisine, uh, for instance, through a restaurant called Mitla Cafe, which was known for its, um, its tacos and burritos and was a popular spot for people who were traveling down the route. Um, we also see the development of an extensive Mexican-American car culture. So, um, you know, one of the most quintessential forms of car culture for Mexican-Americans is the lowriders, which I write about in the opening and conclusion of the book, um, which are known for being kind of a counter narrative to the hot rod, which is known for its speed and its height, whereas lowriders are known for being low and slow. They're meant to be seen. They're meant to be disruptive of kind of your normal streetscape. Um, But we also see that in different historical times, um, and particular in these rail communities and in the agricultural communities in which Mexican and Americans and other um, people of color and immigrant groups settled, that cars were essential just to 
getting around, so connecting them to disparate job opportunities throughout the region, particularly in agriculture, where one had to stitch together um, a year-long salary by moving to different fields. Um, so when we pair this actual history on the route with what is being proposed by um, by city elites and developers around Route 66 Heritage, then the exclusion of Mexican-American lowriders and this subculture um, is very a historical exclusion that writes them out of regional heritage and their essential role on these travel corridors. Is the rewriting of Route 66 history, uh, when I was reading your book, I was thinking it seems like a dog whistle for racism that I'm unaware of, that it's some sort of dog whistle for white supremacy and white privilege. Is the way that Route 66 has been, its history has been rewritten, a dog whistle for the right? I believe that in this region, if we look historically about how narratives of mobility and movement have been used, then if we look at the present moment and the ways that Route 66 heritage is being deployed as one, this exclusionary narrative that is incorrect and writes out the long histories of immigration and people of color and um, indigenous communities, and two, buttresses this celebratory narrative of white settler migration that is um, rooted, rooted R-O-O-T-E-D, in a Great Depression narrative of white migration from the Midwest into um, the, the further West, then yes, it very much so is creating a narrative for these places um, that is steeped in whiteness, steeped in romanticism of a fictive 1930s and post-war era um, that is alluring in particular because of its links to um, white privilege and masculinity and, and the middle class. So... You write that San Bernardino is also geographically close to Hollywood, land of James Dean's iconic Mercury and Rebel Without a Cause, uh, the daring racing feats of Steve McQueen in The Great Escape and Le Mans, and the southern escapades of Bo and Luke Duke in a customized Dodge Charger adorned with a Confederate flag, which lent powerful symbolism to Southern California cruising events. Did the media then, did they racialize Route 66? Does... Does the media play a role in racializing mobility? Most definitely. Um, so I think if we look at the storylines about Route 66 that are the dominant narrative, then they too have um, helped popularize these narratives. Um, but the logics that they're drawing upon have longer roots. Um, so, for instance, it's really in the 1930s with the writings of very progressive writers and um, social scientists that we often celebrate, um, like Paul Taylor, who wrote the Mexican Migration Statistics, um, and Dorothea Lange, who's known for her incredible humanizing photographs along um, these migration chains. 
who are the ones that originally came up with um, many of these tropes that, um, again, romanticize one particular form of migration um, and portray uh, one particular group as the victims of um, of the Dust Bowl trauma, um, while painting other groups as always being either newcomers or only temporary um, additions to the farm labor force or as inherently mobile and who somewhere, somehow are not deserving of the social services and aid and empathy um, that white migrants should receive. Um, but what we see in Hollywood is a, a return to these tropes in which things like automobility are imbued with these same values um, in that it's, it's celebratory, um, it's tied to development, it's tied to romanticization. Um, so all of that is accelerated um, in this era of film. So uh, you also write that processes of social differentiation that you examine, uh, you examine the emergence of what you call an Anglo fantasy past in Southern California, a selective tradition asserting that white migration catalyzed regional development through commercial agriculture. If that is a fantasy, why do you believe white migration did not catalyze regional development, at least in the way that this white narrative would like it to be told? Yeah. Um, so I will say that white migration into the region had incredible impacts on the shape of the economy, the social identity, even the topography of the land, um, because it came with extensive state aid and support of those projects. Um, what the Anglo fantasy past does that's so damaging is that it suggests that the types of development that were present before, and in particular here, I'm thinking of subsistence systems um, that varied amongst the different indigenous populations, of which there were several, um, as well as the cattle industry of the already present Mexican population and the ranching economy that was dominant at the time, as well as the small farms as a, of a large group of New Mexican um, Hispanos, as they would define themselves, um, that were all present in the region and um, competing for, for dominance. And the Anglo fantasy past um, writes those out of the script and instead portray this area as an empty slate or an underdeveloped site um, that only takes on meaning when you have the entrance of white migrants into it. Um, and what that does is it buttresses their their claims or exclusive claims to the regions and the future directions of its development. I keep missing my button. So uh, you write Latinas, Latinos experience racialization through their everyday mobility and its management by state forces. Indeed, throughout the 20th century, mobility functioned as a modality through which race was lived through forces as diverse as historical society as Indian boarding schools, bicycle ordinances, immigration policy, incarceration, traffic checkpoints, and Route 66 heritage. Was this intentional? What would you say to someone 
who argues this, these were unintended consequences of trying to honor the past, integrate Native Americans, keep bicyclists safe, keep immigration documentation up to date, uphold the law, prevent drunk drivers from driving and celebrating automotive history, that the racialization through mobility is nothing more than the fallout from good people trying to do good things. Um. You know, I think that would be a a common response Um, when we first look at these policies or the as they are written, written, um, often they actually appear very apolitical. Um, In particular, I'm thinking about some of the um, travel ordinances that I've read. There often is not any explicit mention of race or racism or specific groups. Um, And that's what I think is so important about looking at these questions over the long 20th century. Um, So how they play out over time, Um, but also looking at not necessarily just how they're written in the text, but how they actually play out in people's lives and the biographies behind those that are writing and executing them. Because it's really when you get into the intimate fabrics of a region and how it functions that we can start to see that these policies are are not accidental, um, that they're not without their intended consequences. Um, so I think that in many ways that folks aren't necessarily um, convening at, you know, at boardroom tables with, you know, evil laughs and thinking about, you know, ah, how can we get these populations? Um, I do think that does occur in some circumstances, maybe not the evil boardroom, but um, definitely there are strong threads of um, white supremacy and in particular anti-Blackness that had led to um, lethal forms of these restrictions on mobility. Um, but I think that oftentimes it happens because of the, the the very strong normalization of these narratives and these policies. Um, so that even, you know, we might say, well, intentioned people in upholding the status quo are nonetheless um, reinscribing real violences against people of color and indigenous communities. Um, so. For instance, one of the ways we might think about this in the present era is there's this resurgence of, you know, Route 66 heritage, and we see this in things like the car festivals, but also, um, and I I wouldn't be surprised if you see this in Chicago as well, um, in streetscapes, so where Route 66 is emboldened on on the roads as you drive by them, their signage on the streets, their bus stops that are redesigned to appear as if they were built in the 1930s when in fact they weren't. Um, and there are mural projects that have images from the roots. Um, and even in the current day Inland Empire, where most of it is majority minority, um, these streetscapes are largely featuring uh, white farmers, white children, um, images from the original citrus magnets that, again, paint this region as exclusively white. And what that does, uh, whether intentional or not, is it, building on those original logics, reinscribes narratives that, again, suggest that um, 
people of color and immigrants do not have equal claims to the directions of the region. And it normalizes this space as one that is middle class and white and oftentimes masculine. You write, traffic checkpoints became a pressing site of contestation as they spread throughout inland Southern California, operating under the guise of public safety. They were most commonly positioned in communities with large immigrant populations where municipal police departments disproportionately identified, criminalized, and penalized Latina and Latino drivers, documented, and redevelopment uh, campaigns were the reasons for regional policies. So you, so in that, you write that uh, how much of this inter- interference and obstacles to mobility happen in ways that whites may not have recognized as they were never the targets. Can whites claim fairly again and accurately that they simply did not know that these sobriety tests were being used as ways to control the mobility of uh, people of color and the way that they move around? Um, Well, I would say a few things to that. Um, One is that not knowing itself is a form of white privilege. That does not involve one of responsibility of um, of how there are uneven prohibitions and permissions on mobility that favor some over others. Um, the other thing I would say is that, yes, we oftentimes are unaware of what kinds of privileges we are afforded because if it doesn't adversely impact us, then there is not necessarily a moment to pause, right? Um, to think about um, how these things function behind their their kind of stated value. And I think the sobriety checkpoints, um, because they're not held in majority um, white neighborhoods or neighborhoods um, that have smaller Latinx or undocumented um, populations um, that one could necessarily uh, claim ignorance of those um, those occurrences. However, in a region um, where these neighborhoods are are so close to one another and where there are activist efforts to um, to make visible the, the populations that they're targeting. And when it's in one case of my own home community that I write about in Pomona, it's actually um, contiguous with a community that is more affluent, um, much has a much larger white population. And it was their police department that was holding the traffic checkpoints as folks exited the freeway to head into the city that was predominantly Latinx. So I think it would be um, one can claim deniability, but it's often a a willful deniability that's based in um, the normalization of their freedom to move. Yeah, there's Again, a, one that's, yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say there's a new uh, recreational and uh, decriminalized marijuana law here in Illinois. And part of the process is I believe they're hiring 1,000 or uh, I'm sorry, uh, putting 1,000 new Illinois state troopers onto this new marijuana DUI squad. And so I can what? just see that this is going <laughs> to be used for a new sobriety check. And you know that this isn't going to be in North Shore suburbs. It's going to be in communities of color. Uh, so does 
What do we miss in our understanding of race when we do not consider the racialized prohibitions and permissions imposed upon mobility? What happens, what do we lose in our understanding of the racial tensions maybe that uh, people of color are having with police? What do we miss in our understanding when we don't understand the racial prohibitions put on mobility? Um, so I think that in, in my field, um, we often have looked at questions of migration and immigration when trying to identify um, the real types of tensions and conflicts and strategies um, that people of color have developed in order to respond to challenge and at times even accommodate um, racism. And in thinking about those long-term, those long-distance movements, um, you know, it's brought incredible insights into border violence into death regimes, into the ways that um, subject identities are articulated that completely dehumanize um, diverse sets of movers. Um, but what I think that we gain when we look at a mobility perspective is that it really forces us to think about the everyday. And when I think about the ways most, many people live their lives, they're largely regional movements. You know, there, there's exceptional movements, again, across borders or travel, et cetera. Um, but the majority of the ways that we navigate the places where we live, the places that shape our identity, the places that shape the access to, um, to resources, it's really in those micro movements, right, of, of going to work, of going to school, of going to the grocery store, of driving someone to the mall, driving someone to their sports practices. So I think that when we can look at how these movements that so many of us take for granted um, as not even a right, but just as something that isn't challenged, then we can miss the ways that a, a large segment of the population um, everyday lives are structured over where they can and cannot move. Um, and, you know, one of the terms I use to think about this is, you know, people of color um, and other folks who have their mobility um, unevenly police create these cognitive maps of where they can go and where they can't go. Um, and they create these maps because they know that there are particular corridors where they can have their car taken, they can have their bike impounded, they can have their their very body threatened by having slurs thrown at them or rocks thrown at them, um, or in extreme instances, um, their lives taken from them. So um, I think one of the most important things that I can do as a writer and educator is to take the things that we take for granted and are difficult for us to see that the every day um, and show how for many people, these types of things are actually quite exceptional. And it's in things like bicycle ordinances, in things like denial of being able to participate in a citywide um, celebratory festival, in things like um, historically the boarding schools um, that we can see where these prohibitions happen, 
Um, but I also think it's a really important and vital place to look for strategies that people use to survive and to thrive despite those boundaries. You mentioned bicycle ordinances. I mentioned bicycle ordinances. I know that we have a lot of bicyclists who listen to our show right now, and they're all saying, yelling at the radio right now, Chuck, ask her about the bicycle ordinances. So (laughs) how were these bicycle ordinances racially enforced and applied? Yes. So, you know, um, so one of the communities that I look at are, is the growth of Japanese immigrants in my particular region um, in the early 20th century. And it's so interesting because um, this really brought me into the early history of bicycles in ways that I did not expect. I wasn't looking for bicycles. <laughs> I was looking for Japanese immigrants and, and their stories in this region. Um, and what I found is that when they entered Southern California, um, really that turn of into the 20th century was a period when bicycles were incredibly popular in this region. Um, so they had the first spectator bicycle stadiums in the state of California. They had these large races. Folks would take the train into the city and then they'd have these these large meets where they would travel across the region as well as have celebratory parades and, um, you know, Riverside, one of the communities I look at had uh, one of the largest bicycling teams um, in the state at that time called the Riverside Wheelers. And there are all these great photos and press coverage. They're wearing medals. They have these great um, uniforms. and, you know, the sport itself is looked upon as, you know, this kind of heyday was in the this 1900s period. Um, and I saw these histories of really white cyclists. And just a few years later, um, you know, there was this rise in, in Japanese cycling. And as I started to look into race rosters and started to look at the narratives in the newsletters by the bicyclists and some of the um, the rules that came from the National um, Cycling League, um, I learned that cycling was actually a racially exclusive practice. It, if you were non-white and specifically black, you were not allowed to be in the cycling circuits that the city had so much pride in. Um, so what Japanese immigrants did is they created their own cycling circuits. They actually created their own cycling track. Um, so there are really high rates of cycling amongst the Japanese immigration, um, Japanese and Japanese American immigrant, Japanese immigrant, and Japanese American, uh, population. Um, and this is both because of the, the kind of cultural um, capital and that was imbued in the cycle in these particular places. Um, the joy of riding a bicycle. These are largely um, young men that are immigrating and riding, um, but also the practicality of it as a tool that gets people from place to place. Um, and this is a a region that is heavily dependent on the economy of citrus, and it's heavily dependent on Japanese immigrants. Um, supplying that labor in this particular period. Um, So on the one hand, the community is really dependent on Japanese immigrants being able to effectively get from the neighborhoods where they're residing to these spaces. 
Um, but on the other hand, this is a community that's highly invested in whiteness and maintaining strict racial lines in its regional geography. So what I began to see was that um, in the everyday ways that Japanese um, cyclists were moving, they were being heavily criminalized um, through local policies that were broadly supposed to address um, transportation. And in writing, these transportation policies, even in newspaper accounts, say that they're really concerned with motorists. So cars are very new, um, and there are a lot of contests over what will streets really be for? Will they be for pedestrians? Will they be for carts? Will they be for cars? So there's a lot of kind of um, skepticism and antagonism towards motorists. Um, but when you look at the actual arrest records, um, what you find is that it's Japanese cyclists that are being the most heavily cited, the most heavily criminalized for their cycling activities and for things that are really very mundane, like riding at night without a light. Um, so this is just one of the, the many ways that Japanese cyclists are told where they can and cannot move. Um, because, again, in their movement to and from the groves, which is completely um, in, in tune with the needs of more elite ranchers, those types of movements are allowed to a degree. Um, but when moving through other parts of the city, and um, we can see that some parts are more heavily criminalized than others. And in particular, it's through the downtown, through these sites. Um, that have these kinds of cultural significance and large white populations where their movements are most heavily regulated. You write that there, uh, write about the shared ways that both the low rider ban and traffic checkpoints stripped drivers of mobility, and it prompts connections to how such practices position Latina, Latino, Latinx residents as outsiders whose movements should be viewed with suspicion. How much are Latinx seen as outsiders as not really Americans by some whites, especially nativists, because police keep Latinx people physically outside of white areas. Because one of the things I kept thinking about when I was reading your mm. book is, uh, you know, I spend time in central Illinois. I spend some time up in northern Wisconsin and northern Michigan. Uh, and I have, you know, you go to these small towns, even in Maine, and you go to these small towns, and all of a sudden you won't see anyone of color, even though you know that there are people of color there, but you just don't see them anywhere. And I started thinking, is the reason that the that I don't see people of color in this northern Michigan town because they're not allowed in that northern Michigan town? Mm-hmm. So uh, is is the reason that Latino, Latina, Latinx uh, people are seen by as outsiders by especially nativists because the police are keeping them physically outside? So that's a, a great question. Um, I would say that on the one hand, it's through these bands and through these checkpoints that their movements are denaturalized. So they're they have this question mark on them, right? That they're literally being stopped and checked and asked questions and their authenticity is being questioned, all of which suggests that they don't belong here, right? Um, and also create real, um, you know, everyday tensions and challenges for these types of movers 
and in particular in terms of the sobriety checkpoints, these come with heavy fees. Um, they come with people's cars being impounded. And, you know, Southern California is infamous for having like horrible public transportation. And this is especially true in the suburbs. So to be taken, for your car to be taken away, you're really disallowing folks um, to everyday forms of movement that they need just to live their lives. Um, so in in that way, these um, these types of activities most definitely reaffirm and re-suggest that um, Latinx communities are outsiders. Um, in terms of the physicality of where they are placed, what I found is that these policies across time try very hard to maintain these strict racial lines between white space and non-white space. Um, and we see this in where people can uh, move and where they can't move um, physically and, you know, their geographic movement, but also where they can settle, where they can buy houses. And we see very strong campaigns to keep people of color out of particular neighborhoods. Um, but what I found really striking is that although these efforts existed, um, they didn't do the job of actually maintaining those racial boundaries. Um, rather, they they tried very hard to inscribe them precisely because um, they were so mitochondrial, because people moved, um, people, you know, have relationships past those neighborhoods despite the staunchest of efforts. Um, so I think that for every kind of form of criminalization we've seen, what we've also seen is um, people coming up with innovative strategies to disrupt the status quo and to live the life they want to live. And sometimes it was for, you know, very progressive purposes. Um, other times it was just because, you know, that's where the fun was happening on the other side of that line. And I'm going to get there. Um, so I. I feel like it, it's different in in communities, perhaps, where there are smaller proportions of people of color. Um, but in these particular neighborhoods, there has always been a significant multiracial population. Um, so, again, despite these staunch efforts, they just weren't very successful in um, in maintaining those lines to the point where... Um, white settler colonists wouldn't be aware of people of color. Um, and in large part also because they were relying on their labor in the fields, but also in their households um, and in roles like domestic. I'm sorry, I keep missing my button. Uh, so uh, what extent then, because you write up this area that you're writing about in Southern California is the Inland Empire. To what extent then have the prohibitions of racialized mobility in the Inland Empire become the prohibitions put on racialized mobility everywhere in the United States? Is the, is the, was the Inland Empire a kind of laboratory for strategies to impose white dominance on people of color? I I do believe that the Inland Empire in many ways was a testing ground for forms of criminalization that have moved well beyond its particular geography. Um, and some of the ways that we can see this is in the types of um, organizations and policies that have grown out of it and since been applied elsewhere. 
Um, so, for instance, the Inland Empire um, and San Bernardino County in particular was one of the first places that entered into a voluntary agreement um, with um, at the federal scale to police and check for um, immigration status um, when it did not need to. Um, so it was really, again, localized police forces through things like arresting folks for jaywalking or for driving without a license that then decided to enter that step, second step of let's now check for immigration status. Um, and those types of agreements and policies have since, you know, proliferated across um, different parts of the United States. It's also in the Inland Empire um, where a number of different hate groups have emerged. It's the birthplace of the Minutemen founder. It is the site where Save Our State, um, another kind of um, anti-immigrant organization, um, developed. Um, so in this way, very much so, it has been a testing ground for policies that have gone, else, gone elsewhere. Um, but the Inland Empire, because of its now in its current state, it's really become a center of the logistics industry. So for anyone who orders anything from Amazon, for instance, um, chances are the products that you receive have been housed in the Inland Empire before they arrived um, via that brown package. Um, and this has led to all sorts of um, campaigns that, you know, what's happening on the ground level in this particular region um, actually span out far beyond it because of those links to logistics. Um, at the same time, it's also a place where we can learn from the activisms that have developed in response. And we can think again here about the warehousing industry. Um, and I'm thinking in particular about Warehouse Workers United. And in one of their particular actions, what they did was they used their bodies to occupy one of the major corridors um, through which um, the um, the trucking trucking industry used in order to move goods from the ports of Los Angeles into the warehouse. And I think it's incredible that, um, you know, through using one's body and standing in the street, right, that you can literally put the flows of global capitalism at a halt. Um, so, you know, if the street has often been criminalized and racialized to the detriment of people of color, um, I think this is one instance where we can see those scripts turned um, so that they might make right claims and claims to labor equity um, in ways that are unique because of its geography. You write a mobility perspective brings to the cultural and ethnic studies table a focus on the ways actors move through their space and how such acts potentially disrupt racial and place-based meanings through their bodies and the technologies that enable those movements. While the result has often been a possessive investment in whiteness, this is not always the case. What is meant by possessive investment in whiteness, and do we all have that investment, no matter our race? So when I refer to a possessive investment in whiteness, I'm referring to an analytic concept by a Black Studies professor at UC Santa Barbara named um, George Lipsitz. Um, and what he is suggesting is that there are real material benefits to whiteness, 
um, in terms of things like access to property, um, cultural belonging, safety, etc. Um, and that oftentimes folks who do not necessarily benefit fully um, will reinvest in the construct of whiteness and the way privilege is afforded according to it um, in the hopes that getting closer to it, one will also receive some of those privileges. Um, and this has often put different groups of color as well as um, marginal whites or, or working class whites in competition with one another uh, for kind of this, this small pot, <laughs> right, of, of benefits. Um, and so, you know, in looking through these histories of how um, folks with the most prohibitions on their mobility have reacted to this truth, um, particularly as mobility has been structured um, to, to reinscribe whiteness with privilege. Um, what I found is they try a lot of different strategies in order to make do and to make change. Um, and most definitely, there are instances where that means um, reaffirming the the logics of whiteness, um, reaffirming the supremacy of whiteness. Um, and what this looks like in practice um, often means someone claiming a kind of mediary status uh, where, you know, they kind of acknowledge the benefits of whiteness and, and then denigrate those groups that are further from whiteness than they are. Um, and there's one story that I tell, and it's, it's it's very nuanced and it's tragic about a a Japanese American family who are li living in a dormitory and just you know really horrible living conditions that contribute to the death of their young son, um, and they decide that they need to get into a different living situation. But um, this is an area again in which the geography is delineated between lines of white and non-white. So they move into a white neighborhood and that is, you know, immediately challenged. Um, but one of the ways that they, they try to maintain their claims and their right to be in that neighborhood is by describing all of the ways that they are, they are assimilated. Um, you know, they're, they're Christian, they speak English, um, they own a business. But what they also do is they, they denigrate other groups that are further from whiteness than they are, in particular, working class um, Mexican um, residents and African-American residents and even other working class um, Japanese residents. So what this does is it, it naturalizes again the, um, the supremacy of um, white settlement while denigrating that of other non-white groups in the ways that just re-naturalizes those power positions. Um, but in terms of your your question as to don't we all then invest in this, um, I think that what I saw across time is that even though different groups will try to invest in whiteness in order to gain its privileges, that promise just is never really um, attainable for people of color to different degrees. Um, 
So and particularly when we look at post-war suburbia and um, Latinx and African-American suburbanites who try to claim kind of this, um, this suburban dream that's based on the white picket fence and all of that, um, their efforts, you know, despite how strong they are, are incredibly unsuccessful. And what, the, what happens is basically their, their value, their property values um, are, are constantly at challenge. They lose their tax base. Um, their, their children are siphoned into um, the substandard schooling opportunities. Um, so time and time again, there are different subgroups that and people, individuals that will seek to invest in whiteness. But that promise is uneven across groups. Um, so what folks have done alternatively is invest in, you know, creating their own alternative futures. And those um, face different challenges, um, but at times have been more successful. One last question for you. We have been speaking with Chicana and Chicano studies scholar Genevieve Carpio. She is author of collisions at the crossroads, how place and mobility make race. Genevieve is assistant professor of Chicana and Chicano studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. And you can follow her on Twitter at Gina Carpio. That's G-E-N-A-C-A-R-P-I-O. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write, these are a pair of larger global manifestations of practices when you're talking about uh, defining race by mobility and placemaking. These are a pair of a larger global manifestation of practices delineating lines of citizenship through movement, which are evidence in the passbook system of apartheid South Africa, Israeli checkpoints along the Palestinian West Bank, and the erection of special administrative regions requiring mainland Chinese nationals to bear permit when traveling or working in wealthier regions. Mobility and placemaking consistently serve as agents delineating citizenship through the production of difference. Is the only way to truly overcome mobility and placemaking that defines racial identity in an unequal fashion, is the only way to overcome that by ending borders? Mm. Well, I think that the question of can we eliminate borders at all um, would be a difficult one to accomplish. Um, I think that borders happen in many different ways. So we can think about um, politically, we can think about topographically. Um, but I think that ultimately that if we were to eliminate borders, what it would not eliminate are the logics that manage how people move. So even within my own region, um, there aren't there aren't necessarily um, physical borders that are the primary culprit in creating this racialization because these types of things are happening far away from um, from national borders, in particular. You know, this is more than 100 miles away from the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, and I think what it shows is that um, states and cities and regions can get quite creative um, in how they either facilitate or um, prohibit um, movement at a variety of geographies. 
Um, so I think that if anything, eliminating, eliminating borders wouldn't go far enough, <laughs> right? Um, in terms of um, addressing some of these challenges and inequities. Um, but rather, it's about disentangling the logics of capitalism and the logics of um, white privilege and white supremacy that structure these logics that will be key to unraveling the very real tensions and challenges that they create for the population they seek to manage. Well, this is a fantastic book because one of the things that it enlightened me about is how so often we, we hear the term institutional racism, but to, there's no actual building. There is no actual institute <laughs> of racism. So that idea can be rather elusive to people. Where does this institutional racism exist? And you pointing out that it has to do with the uh, racialization of mobility and the racialization of placemaking really brings to the fore where you can actually see institutional racism physically existing. So I really appreciated your book. It's really fantastic. We've been speaking with Chicana and Chicano Studies scholar Genevieve Carpio, author of Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race. Follow Genevieve on Twitter at Gina Carpio. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp, this is hell. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become this is hell's pimp, support this is hell right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support right now. When you do, we will send you a gift you can choose from at our site. Again, this is hell.com. Then click on support. Thanks this week goes to James for his generous support and the tithing commitment of John and Brett, whose support is always appreciated. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. If you want to be thanked on air, support This Is Hell and get a This Is Hell coffee mug, t-shirt, and or tote bag. Go to thisishell.com. Click on support. In a moment, we'll have the return of our beloved correspondent on all things Brazil, Brazil Wires and Telesur Englishes, and the Brazilian Network 24-7's Brian Mir. Brian will be back on to tell us what is really happening in Brazil, as he does from time to time on our show, because the U.S. and Western media sure isn't telling you the truth about Brazil, so we'll hear from Brian in a few. Uh, I'm skipping that Beto O'Rourke stuff. I really, really want to apologize, folks. I know you want to hear that stuff. I'll get to this other bit later. Da, 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 da. All right. Let's read your answers to this week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? What the hell did Chuck break his, break his tooth on last week? By the way, I was in a fight with my brother when I was like six, and he broke my tooth on a toilet bowl. So that was pretty brutal. All replies read on air right now. This week's winner gets one of the books featured on this week's show, Brian Mears' Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Again, the question from hell is, what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or tweet it to us at thisishellradio, and you still have a chance at winning this week's prize. Again, Brian Muir's book, Year of Lead. Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question from hell because... Uh, What the hell did Chuck work his tooth on last week? Nick A. says, trick question, the tooth broke him. Oh, nice. Fabio L. says, the accumulation of a lifetime of privatized dental care. (laughs) Elliot P. said, my D., it's made of steel. Oh, Elliot, come on. Please. Mike A said, John Stossel's mustache. Wait, who said that? <laughs> that was Mark A. That was actually somehow grosser than what Elliot P wrote. Uh, John M said, biting satire. Oh, Randall nice. M said, popcorn kernels. 
Fergus F. said, chewing on the bones of the rich. This joke will not go away until the rich do. <laughs> Wally R. said, late night iftar buffet kebabs that set out too long. <laughs> what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Joshua L. said, a champagne bottle saved from 15 years ago's celebration of Ronald Reagan's death. <laughs> Jeff C. said, the hard truth. <laughs> Stephen C. said, a tow rope. Thomas K. said, the bitter irony, which unsurprisingly tastes of iron and is quite bitter. Who said that? That was Thomas K. Okay. What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? David G. said, the hand that feeds him. <laughs> Mike S. said, this image is too real. Stop it. Oh, I posted a how to cure a toothache extraction image from Wiki, uh, WikiHow. Paolo S. said, a baby's skull. <laughs> what? Paolo. <laughs> Ronaldo M said, and by the way, they're way softer, so you wouldn't really break your. <laughs> Ronaldo M said, obviously not, pasta fajoule. <laughs> Garrett S said, the American dream. Walt W said, attempting to repeat mainstream media lies. <laughs> Chris H says, a tooth. <laughs> what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Jacob P says, jelly belly, Reagan style, baby, <laughs> and then tweeted a link to uh, Ronald Reagan with his desk full of jelly beans. <laughs> well, that's. So close. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Stephanie M. says, chewing through all the reading he does to prep for interviews, I imagine. <laughs> Mika D. said, his button he keeps missing. <laughs> Alexandra C. said, theory and practice. What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Edison K. said, the fist of a bureaucrat and the employee of the Kremlin in the basement of a tattoo shop in St. Petersburg shortly after his cover was blown while smuggling diamonds for the FBI. Again. Really close to me. Jessica B says, maybe a pecan sandy? That's what I broke my tooth on. <laughs> Joe S says, the sardonic truth. Mark uh, Mark R says, the rich. Pete D, or Penn D says, the hard outer shell of our growing cynicism. cynicism. Stop buying it, Chuck. <laughs> Benjamin C says, a stale pack of big league chew. <laughs> it was invented by Jim Bouton. Really? Yeah. Uh, Harold J says pizza you assumed was boneless. <laughs> Warren L says the next world tide of history, the flotsam of the last vestiges of feudalism, and the great taste of the victory of image over substance. Andrew T says like any good journalist, journalist he broke his tooth on heartbreaking news. Marco G says the jawbreaker candy after half a Malort bottle. <laughs> then Ford L says jawbreaker the candy not the band. Gorilla G says. To Chuck's surprise, a genuine gold florin. <laughs> a genuine what? Gold, gold florin. <laughs> what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Dennis H. says freedom. Sean M. says a rooster image. I think I know what you're trying to say there, Sean. <laughs> uh, Zach A. says in a daring act of resistance to the status quo, Chuck bit the boot everyone else licks. <laughs> Who's that? That was Zach A. Shane M. says truth flavored dentine. Ladio says he did it popping open a 16 ounce E&B long neck. Tom G says, post-proto-paleo-neoliberalism. <laughs> what the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last? Those are a lot of syllables. You could break your teeth on uh, Chris S says, the tooth was always breaking. The object that finally revealed the decay inside may as well have been a plum blossom falling into a fountain. The true violence was on the inside, concealed from aid, aided in its secret work by an attachment to surfaces and spectacle. That's beautiful. Howard F says, the graphite from the fuel rods of neoliberalism. <laughs> Aaron D. says a Brazil nut grown on recently cleared former f rainforest and imported despite a 20% tariff. Joseph, er, Jeffy D. wrote Godzilla's clit. <laughs> Jeff. Uh, Austin R.M. says a piece you of... You always forget Godzilla is a woman. A, I didn't. A piece of the dead and dried husk of the modern capitalist state. <laughs> a couple more responses via Twitter. 
Rocket City QC said, well, on Brian's book, obviously, it's so good he just had to eat it all up but had one hell of a spine. What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Singing Lemon, Lemon Symphonies said, dried fruit. Graham M.M. said, fighting with a pug over the last digestive biscuit. The pug won. Uh, Marvis J. said, the bones of the rich. MC Cat or MCAT said, troublesome twist off cap of national, national, national beer. <laughs> Time is short. MFers said, the bar on his cage of oppression. Korg.org said, Chuck broke his tooth while dreaming of the benefits of neoliberal economics. And finally, Bradsky Nomath said, on his other teeth, unconsciously clenching his jaw too hard while reading up on another scary climate change. Interview. My response to the question from hell. What the hell did Chuck break his tooth on last week? Now, anyone who knows me when I was much younger and couch surfing when I was living in squalor, occupying illegal rental rooms that were fire traps, hustling every day just to get something to eat and pay whatever rent I could, keeping dealer hours, which are irregular at best and often continue through sunrise, and then living in that kind of lowbrow street urchin lifestyle, when that's happening, you need a lot of cheap sugar. And I would go to this pinball parlor called Pinball Pete's, which seemed to be open 24 hours. And you could go in there and use a vending machine that gave you six ounces of Coca-Cola in a paper cup. And if you selected no ice, it was still kind of cold. But the important thing was it was incredibly syrupy and just jacked with sugar. So I'd get a couple of those at 10 cents each and then a couple boxes of candy because that's about how far plasma donation money would get me toward the end of the month. And that candy of my depraved, drug-addled youth like my depraved, drug-addled present, was fueled by a candy that I would always choose. The candy that my girlie's ex once used in describing how weird I was because I survived on Pinball Pete Cokes and the wonderful concoction by Forest Park's very own Ferrara Pan Company. The thing I broke my tooth on was... A lemon head. A lemon head. That makes this week's winner. Let's see. Mark A said John Stossel's mustache. Jeff C said the hard truth. I like bitter irony from Thomas. David G said the hand that feeds him. That's good. Uh, Eric S, the American dream. Uh, Mika D saying the button he keeps missing. Joseph S saying the sardonic truth. Gorilla G, the real gold florin. But I'm going to go with what Zach said. I broke my tooth on the boot that everyone else licks. That makes this week's winner, Zach. You have won Brian Mears' Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. And, Zach, I'm also throwing in a box of Lemonheads. Thanks to everyone for coming out to This Is Hell Office Hours at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West of Vaughn, which happen every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang me out, hang hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell advertising stickers, show-related books every Wednesday. I want to thank everybody who dropped by this week. Brian, Eric, Wally, John, Johnny, David, Daphne, another Brian, Evan, Rachel, Anna, Alex, Leo, Brian, Ashwin, uh, Rory. Uh, Shelly, Jordan, and Elliot, and everyone else I can't remember because I'm exhausted. Just exhausted, I tell you. Join us at Carrie's Lounge 
every Wednesday from 6 to 9 p.m., 2251 West Devon. For This Is Hell Office Hours, don't forget, if you are an artist or you are a musician who wants to participate in our upcoming listener appreciation and anniversary party, all you have to do is email me your art or music to chuck at thisishell.com. Coming up on this week's show, what the hell is really happening in Brazil is our media here in the U.S. is completely ignoring the revolution that may be starting. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin reads an interview with the monster. We'll also have what we've been up to on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. We want to thank some listeners for sharing this is hell online. What's happening on upcoming episodes? I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. The planet's on fire. So, yes. This is hell. Over a million students and teachers took to Brazil's streets in mid-May, calling a strike against what they called the government of Jair Bolsonaro's attack on critical thinking. Then on May 30th, they did again, and even more students and teachers participated in the midweek strikes. But you probably didn't hear about either, as the Western and U.S. media is doing everything they can do to downplay, if not dismiss, the uprising against growing fascism in Brazil. Returning to This Is Hell to help us find out what really is happening in Brazil, as he does for us on a regular occasion. Our most beloved correspondent, Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil, which is the second volume in the series, Dispatches from a Coup in Progress. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Brian. Thanks, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Brian is co-editor of Brazil and Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur, and you can find out more about Brazil Wire online at BrazilWire.com and Telesur English at TelesurEnglish.net. You wrote prior to last week's national student and teacher strikes that the Thursday, May 30th uh, strikes were showing signs of being even bigger than the May 15th event, which brought millions of people to the streets of Brazil, uh, uh, dozens of uh, cities in Brazil. Unsurprisingly, the May 15th protest did not get much coverage here in the U.S. I looked it up online and only found coverage in the non-U.S. press. That's not to say it wasn't covered, but if it was, it got very little coverage. In fact, the success of that May 15th strike led to the strike two weeks later. The strikes have been characterized as protests against President Jair Bolsonaro's education policies and at times simply being anti-Bolsonaro strikes. Are these strikes specifically against education policy or are they more generally against Bolsonaro's government? Well, Chuck, the main objective of these uh, strikes was to block Bolsonaro's education cuts. But as always in all protests now, there are a lot of screams of free Lula. And also there's a secondary goal to the strikes, which is to block the retirement reform, uh, the proposed retirement reforms and all of Bolsonaro's neoliberal, ultra neoliberal structural adjustments that he's proposing right now. So even though the main Thing was blocking education cuts. There were also a lot of people yelling about the retirement reform and free Lula. So did the power and the participa- participation in the education strikes, do you think that led to an opening for a larger critique and growing opposition to Bolsonaro? Well, uh, definitely, but also it's kind of uh, leading 
to this event, which is happening next Friday, which is going to be another national general strike, like the one that happened in 2017, when 35 million people didn't go to work one day, all the public transportation stopped in all the major cities, and thousands of uh, major arteries and highways were blocked with burning tires. Now, that's going to happen again this Friday, and I predict it's going to be even bigger than the 2017 general strike, because basically we have two groups that have been really fighting since the coup, uh, 2016 coup, which took Dilma Rousseff out of power, which is we've had these major labor union events, you know, major strikes. They successfully blocked the Michelle Temer government from implementing these really shitty uh, retirement reforms. Pardon my swear word, sorry. These, these lousy retirement reforms. And, uh, and also we've had all these student protests, you know, like in 2015, high school students in Sao Paulo occupied and took over a hundred schools, you know, because the governor was such a sleazebag, he, he stopped buying toilet paper even for the, for the high schools, you know? So, so what we had with these student strikes, and te- there were student and teacher strikes. So for the first time, all of the students and the labor unions came together. And so it was like, it was just huge. These were the biggest protests I've been in since 2013. And so my prediction is that next uh, Friday, June 14th, it's going to be really great. It's going to be huge. Yeah, and we'll get uh, into what those protests are all about, how they're different, because these are a more general strike and not just opposed to uh, uh, the education policies in a moment. But you call these protests the largest people's mobilizations since the 2016 coup. So what do people here in the U.S., people who watch the media here in the U.S., what do they miss when the current protests and their contexts are not covered? What, do we, what, do you, what are you afraid people are missing here in the United States in their understanding of what is taking place in Brazil when these massive, massive strikes are ignored in the U.S. press? Well, I think it like weakens solidarity with the Brazilian left. And it plays into this sense of there is no alternative. It's inevitable. The rise of the far right, there's nothing anyone can do about it. And so it, in kind of way, it bounces back and makes people feel maybe more complacent about Trump in the U.S. You know, and um, it's outrageous because the all right, the, I saw coverage of The Guardian. Right. So they had these protests on May 15th, the strikes, you know, The Guardian called them tens of thousands. Right. Sao Paulo alone had 350,000 people on the street and the Guardian called that. And these protests took place in hundreds of towns and cities. There were towns. There was a town with 200,000 people living in it. Uh, uh, Rio Verde and Goiás, 15 percent of the population came out on the streets. You know, they put 30,000 people on the street and the Guardian called the entire nationwide protest, tens of thousands. And then Bolsonaro called for a counter-protest, you know, uh, and his supporters calling for shutting down the Supreme Court and shutting down Congress, because they're both arguing with Bolsonaro now, fighting with Bolsonaro. So that, in a way, the objective of the protest was reminiscent of protests in Nazi Germany in the early 1930s, calling for the president to shut down the Supreme Court and whatnot. But the Guardian went way out of its way to give coverage to this protest. And I saw a writer from, who's written for, the, uh, for Jacobin 
went out, didn't tweet anything out about the May 15th student strikes at all, but he went to this right-wing protest, and he was bouncing tweets back and forth with other mainstream journalists about how the people out on the street on the pro-Bolsonaro protest didn't seem so radical. They were just normal Brazilians. But these protests, they had about 30,000 people on the street in Sao Paulo, about 40,000 in Rio, and in most other towns, just a couple hundred people. They completely fizzled out. But the way they were treated in the Guardian, they were equal in size to the, the massive education strike. So what, I, I, don't, I don't understand what the point of that is, you know? And you posted on the morning of the May 30th uh, teacher and student strikes, quote, education protests are kicking off in hundreds of towns and cities across Brazil and Rio Verde, Goiás, an estimated 14 percent of the town's population, as you're saying, of 220,000 is already on the streets. That is larger than last Sunday's pro-Bolsonaro protests in Sao Paulo and Brasilia, which were given extensive coverage by the foreign uh, correspondent community, many of whom bent over backwards on social media to explain how moderate those protesters who were calling for a shutdown of the Supreme Court appeared, as you were saying. Again, in fact, unlike when I searched on the teacher and student strikes, Western media outlets immediately popped up with coverage of the pro-Bolsonaro marches, Reuters, Time, AP News, and again, The Guardian. You then ask, are they going to give fair coverage to today's protests, the ones on May 30th? Will they pretend they are the same size as last Sunday's or will they just ignore them? And sure enough, as you're pointing out, they said that they were the same size and other outlets just ignored them. So what what does it say to you about The Guardian, which is seen as a you know, liberal newspaper? What does it say to you about The Guardian? When, I know. What does it say to you about The Guardian when uh, they are making this uh, equivalency to the Jair Bolsonaro ra- rallies, if not just completely dismissing the protests that are happening in Brazil. What does that tell you about what's happening at The Guardian? Well, they're engaged in apology for fascism, which is disgusting if you look at The Guardian's legacy, because I have a friend whose uncle was arrested in Germany in 1936 for having a copy of The Guardian on him. <laughs> you know, like the Gu- if you look at The Guardian's coverage of Germany in the 30s, it was really good. But now they're apologizing, essentially, for a neo-fascist. You know, that's what they're doing. So, and, you know, big business and fascism have always walked hand in hand. And Guardian's not, uh, the, the Guardian Trust uh, uh, was dissolved in 2008, which was this kind of nonprofit board that tried, that guaranteed objectivity in their coverage or whatever. And it was replaced with a, a for-profit company called Guardian Trust Limited, of which I guess HSBC is a big shareholder now. So they're just in bed with their sponsors, their corporate advertisers and big business. And you can really see it in their horrible coverage of Venezuela. I think I don't think anyone who's paying attention to what's going on in Latin America is fooled by the Guard anymore because their mask has completely fallen on Venezuela. They're openly cheerleading for these far right wing military coup to take over there. Brian, are there any Western media outlets that you could suggest our listeners to go to to actually read in English about what is actually happening in Brazil? Or do they have to go to places like Telesur English and Brazil Wire? And I know that you would have a conflict of interest in pointing those out, but I'm just saying, where would you where would you suggest people go to to actually find out what's happening in Brazil? 
Chuck, I'm I'm pretty disappointed with a lot of so-called left coverage of Brazil in the U.S. Very disappointed. There, there's a guy who writes, the nation is spotty, you know, but there's a guy who writes for them who's fantastic, who's Mike Fox. You know, um, I would look for, if you can find like continental European news in English, because Le Monde and their Spiegel and everything, they've been calling it all along. They called it a coup in 2016 when the New York Times and Guardian were pretending it wasn't a coup, you know, but I don't, I don't really know any publications in English that are very good on Brazil. And, you know, Brazil Wire, we're mostly analysis. We're, it's just me and my buddy, Dan, and we do it voluntarily. We don't, we can't really cover news. You know, we, we, uh, we produce analysis, but we're not a news service. So it's just, it's disappointing. I mean, okay, RT has pretty good coverage of Brazil, surprisingly. I guess I'd recommend RT a little bit, but, you know, they don't do a lot of coverage, but what they do is less biased towards American corporations' interests and things than the the regular Anglophone media. You I would say maybe RT, huh? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I would say like RT, and if you can find any... English language coverage in the European press, continental European press. You were pointing out how these smaller and more mid-sized cities are turning out huge numbers when it comes to these uh, current uh, protests and the strikes that are uh, uh, currently in opposition to Bolsonaro. What does the fact that small and mid-sized cities have had huge turnouts, what does that tell you about the current opposition to Bolsonaro. Are these in areas where in the past there was support for Bolsonaro? Are you seeing areas where there was support for Bolsonaro, yet there are incredible, pro- incredibly large protests today? Okay, well, first of all, you know, like the the main place where the crowds were just incredible was in the Northeast. Now, the Northeast made serious gains for the PT party in the last elections. They had, every state in the Northeast is now controlled by a left-wing governor. Right. So that that's like an island of sanity within Brazil. And the protests in those towns were huge. You know, like Caruaru, Pernambuco put 50,000 people on the streets. It's a town of 300,000. But but there were big protests in traditional, you know, right wing and Bolsonaro strongholds, towns in the interior of Sao Paulo state. Places in, in Paraná, where Sergio Moro and the Lava Jato investigation are from, put tens of thousands of people on the street. And this town I mentioned before, Rio Verde in Goiás, Goiás was a stronghold for Bolsonaro, too. So it shows that it just exemplifies what the polls are also showing, which is that his popularity has dropped in half since he took office. And he's now polling with a popularity, a support rate lower than any president since the dictatorship at this stage of his mandate. You know, so his, his support is just plummeting. And it, you know, they're bickering. There's all this infighting between different right-wing factions of opportunists, you know, who got footholds in his government. And uh, many of his actions are being blocked. Uh, as it turns out, the massive education blocks, I was just reading online before I came on with you, a judge in Baez just blocked them. You know, but so this, there's going to be a court battle before they could be pushed through. Even even if the Supreme Court eventually decides to authorize them, it's going to take months and months before anything happens. If Bolsonaro ran for president today, if they reran the October elections, would the worker party, workers party, 
Fernando Haddad, do any better than losing to Bolsonaro 55 to 45? Yeah, of course he would, because, you know, they stole the election last year. There's all kinds of evidence of fraud. If they had if they held a free and fair election, the PT would win in a second. Any candidate they put up or any candidate that they supported from another left party would win in a second because the I mean, the fight right now is not to impeach Bolsonaro. It's the left is fighting to invalidate the elections for fraud because there's just ample proof that there were fraudulent elections. I mean, I can give one example very quickly. I could give dozens of examples, but Sergio Moro, who was Lula's inquisitor, prosecutor, and judge, who ruled on his own investigation with no jury to put Lula in jail during election season, and then they barred him from speaking publicly until after the elections, so he couldn't influence anything, right? Moro leaked to the media one week before the elections that Haddad was under investigation for fraud, all right? And this was covered in all the media. It made it into the English language media and everything. Now, the vice president, General Hamilton Moran, said that this happened after he had met with Bolsonaro and agreed to become Bolsonaro's justice minister. And then after the elections, it came out. Well, after the, after the information was leaked, it was it was revealed that those charges had already been dismissed. And then, you know, in January, he was fully and totally exonerated from any of those charges. So that's a clear case of a guy committing. Also, it's illegal to leak any information to the media about criminal investigations against candidates running for office during election season, which is the two months before the election. So Morrow committed a crime. There's The vice president is saying he colluded with Bolsonaro before he committed that crime. And the charges that he leaked to the media were uh, non-existent, really. They didn't, there, there was no basis to them. So that, that alone should be enough to invalidate the elections. You know, so the, the fight now is not impeachment, it's invalidate the elections and hold them over again. You know, so obviously Haddad would win if they held the elections today. What do you think the likelihood of that to ha- is going to happen? I mean, it would seem like there's absolutely no chance that's going to happen, that the uh, far right-wing government would make certain that that wouldn't happen. Well, the thing is, Chuck, the battles going on between the Supreme Court, Congress, and Bolson- and the executive branch right now, they're all just stabbing each other in the back and fighting with each other. So there's a chance that, like, if Congress got so pissed off at Bolsonaro, uh, you know, they could they could uh, push through something like this. But what's probably going to happen, which is less interesting for progressives and people on the left and whatnot in Brazil, is that Bolsonaro is going to step down or be forced out, and then this general General Hamilton Moran will take over, and then we'll have a military general uh, running the country as opposed to the former military captain we have right now, both <laughs> actors in the dictatorship. Yeah, and you. This is what exactly what you predicted a long time ago, before even the election was over. Uh, Brazil Dofato reported the demonstrations are uh, these uh, teacher and student strikes are also a response to the pro Bolsonaro rallies that took place. In one of the right wing rallies, demonstrators took down a banner in support of public education that was hung outside the Federal University of Paraná during the protest against the budget freeze. During today's march on May 30th, a new larger banner was hung at the same spot. And other universities also hung up banners in solidarity. Why is Bolsonaro, why is his government, why are his supporters opposed to public education? Is this just about 
privatizing education? Is that it? Or is it something more than that? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it, because it's a Nazi-era trope. They're rallying against cultural Marxism. Steve Bannon and these people's cultural Marxism. Bolsonaro mentions cultural Marxism in his acceptance speech for the presidency on his inauguration day. He mentioned it. So they've, they're rallying. They've decided, him and his education minister has no experience in education whatsoever, just another opportunist right-wing nut job. Uh, they've decided that some universities in the federal system are over-promoting cultural Marxism, so they're choking all the funding out for them. And they've decided to stop funding university-level sociology and philosophy altogether in the public university departments because they're bastions of cultural Marxism. All right? And, that, and it's worth noting that both philosophy and sociology were banned in 1971, during the neo-fascist military dictatorship, so it's it's a, it's just it's ridiculous. Breville. It's ideological. It's it's an ideological attack against the education system, and they're also trying to wipe all mention of Paulo Freire from all levels of the school system as well. It's like the most academically cited. Uh, intellectual in Brazilian history. I think last year is the third most cited intellectual in the humanities in the world. Wow. So you write, uh, you shared an image of an awesome poster that you write was put up as Argentina gears up for its June 6th protest against visits by a visit by Brazilian right-wing extremist, President Jair Bolsonaro. Poster reads, your hate is not welcome here. How has the region reacted to the Bolsonaro government? Well, I'm really happy about this. This protest, if I'm not mistaken, against Bolsonaro in Argentina is going on today. Um, but, you know, we're getting solidarity from people in other countries. I, people in Argentina, which is, you know, Brazilians have love-hate relationship with Argentinians, basically because of soccer and everything, you know. But, but we have to say the solidarity that they're showing in Argentina for Lula and for the unions and the social movements against Bolsonaro is really phenomenal. And they're in the same boat. You know, now, Christina Kirshner now, they launched a lawfare investigation against her to try to prevent her from running for president. And she's leading in all the polls, you know, and she's promising to undo the structural adjustments that Macri made that, that tanked their economy. And she was very clever. She decided at the last minute, they were setting up this massive lawfare investigation against her for some imaginary corruption charge from the 1990s and, you know, planning to arrest her and everything. So she just said at the last minute, I'm running for vice president instead of president. And so it threw them this massive curveball because they, they, they weren't set up to go after the guy who's running for president. So I, I hope they win, you know. And if they win, it's really good news for the Latin American left. Because, uh, uh, go ahead, sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, you, you shared a Teleser article titled Sadism and Misogyny in Bolsonaro's Area Nation by Sonara Menezes. The article uh, reports that in Sao Paulo, funk singer MC Riaca, or Riasa, who uh, com- composed misogynistic jingles for Bolsonaro's Presidential campaign attempted to beat, uh, attempts to beat his pregnant girlfriend to death. Then he killed himself. Serana then offers tweets of support for MC Raka 
from supporters of Bolsonaro, including Bolsonaro himself. If the government is this misogynist, do any women vote for them? Does misogyny still win votes in Brazil? Well, you know, a lot of evangelical Christian women voted for Bolsonaro because uh, of this illegal What's Up slander campaign that they ran, you know, in the weeks leading up to the election that now appears to have been supported by Steve Bannon, which ran photoshopped images um, suggesting that Haddad was a pedophile and uh, the vice presidential candidate Manuela Manuela Haddad with a T-shirt on saying Jesus was a transvestite. And, you know, during the Not Him protest, they bombarded evangelical Christian women with photos from Slut Walk, from an earlier Slut Walk protest, saying that Not Him was just a bunch of lesbians kissing topless on the street. And a lot of uh, people believed this, you know, they believed what they were seeing on their WhatsApp feeds. So, yeah, he, so his popularity with women spiked 5% the day after the Not Him protest. You know, but I think they're losing. He's losing a lot of support from women now. One of the organizing groups in these strikes has been the group that you've discussed on our show several times, CUT, C-U-T. The Bolsonaro government seems to have underestimated the strength of the student movement. Considering the success the CUT had in organizing against and protesting the education and national retirement system cuts back in 2016, What explains why the Bolsonaro government would underestimate protesters' strength less than three years later? I'm not sure, you know, if they, they they may have underestimated. What what I don't think they were expecting was that the unions would join with the students. And this has thrown them a massive curveball. You know, I think they had contingency plans to deal with unions, you know, with strikes. And there's a lot of strikes going on, you know, across the country. But I don't think they were plan- They imagined that the students would come out in such force together with the teachers' unions and the other labor unions, you know? So, and, and it's just bad, you know, it's just, it's just not being very uh, aware of what's happening in your own country. It's just bad intelligence. It's just like, why did the U.S. government put all of their weight behind this guy Juan Guaido in Venezuela? It was really bad intelligence. You know, John Bolton convinced Trump that all they had to do was make Guaido president, and then the Venezuelan people would back him up and they'd get rid of Maduro. Sometimes having bad intelligence can, you know, really screw up your country. And that's what's happening with, I mean, I'm glad they've got bad intelligence in this case. Right. But, you know? <laughs> Uh, One last question for you, Brian. And as you are a correspondent, we don't ask you a question from hell. We just ask you a question that I just got to know what's going on. So obviously, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, people in Argentina, people in Brazil, people in Ecuador, people in Venezuela, people throughout Latin America are thoroughly aware of the lawfare campaign that's going on. But if you asked any American what is the lawfare campaign, they would be as clueless as they are when you ask them what neoliberalism is. It's amazing how uninformed the American uh, audience is. But even the Pope is talking about lawfare, and it still isn't getting any press in the U.S. You quote Pope Francis speaking on Tuesday at the Summit of Pan-American Judges on Social Rights and Franciscan Doctrine, saying lawfare, he actually uses the word lawfare, in addition to putting countries' democracy at serious risk, is used to undermine emerging political processes and to encourage the systematic violation 
of social rights. In order to guarantee the institutional quality of states, it is essential to detect and neutralize this type of practice resulting from improper judicial activity in combination with parallel media operations. And we are all familiar with the early media judgment. Is the whole world aware of what the U.S. is doing to overthrow governments that are not friendly with U.S. corporations, except the people here in the U.S.? And if so, what does that tell you about our press, quote-unquote, freedom? I don't, you know, I don't think it's the whole world, but I think a lot of Latin Americans are aware of this, and I see these tactics now being used in other regions of the world. And what it, what it tells you about the media is that the media in the U.S. is an extension of the U.S. state. It's part of the extended state. It may offer some kind of critical coverage of national policies and national politics. Uh, some media venues might be more slanted towards progressives and others more conservative. But when it comes to reporting on the third world, they're united in representing the interests of American corporations and the American State Department. We have been speaking with editor and correspondent Brian Muir, who edited and contributed to the collection Year of Lead. You must get this book, Year of Lead, Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. If you really want to know what has been happening in Brazil, get Brian's book. He is co-editor of Brazil Wire and Brazil correspondent for Telesur English's news program from the South. He's our correspondent on all things Brazil. Follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Find Brazil Wire online at brazilwire.com and Telesur English at telesurenglish.net. Brian, it's always great to hear your voice, sir. Thank you so much for everything that you do for our show. I really appreciate it because we wouldn't be getting any good reporting on Brazil if it wasn't for you. Thanks for having me again, Chuck. It's always a pleasure to be on with you, and I miss everyone in Chicago. All right. Love you, brother. Talk to you soon. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. During the moment of truth in a couple of minutes. Jeff Dorchin reads an interview with a monster. Speaking of our horrible business model, where we stupidly put people before profits, on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash this is hell, I told the horrible story of how capitalism is taking everything from our lives, commodifying it, put a, putting a price on it, even turning the morning drive to work with a loved one into a money-making opportunity that, of course, Profits, a multi-billion dollar corporation. We also shared our June 10th, 2000 interview with investigative journalist Martin A. Lee. Martin is not only the co-author with Bruce Schlain of the best book ever written about LSD, Acid Dreams, the CIA, LSD, and the 60s universe, uh, 60s Rebellion, which uh, Garrison Lovely mentioned during our conversation on psychedelics during our last over-the-air show. But Martin also wrote the book on the rise of fascism in Europe way back in 1997, The Beast Re- awakens fascism's resurgence from Hitler's spy masters to today's neo-Nazi groups and right-wing extremists. We talked to Martin shortly after this book was released in paperback with new material. That's right, way before Yanis Varoufakis was on our show in 2013 to tell us that the European right and fascism was on the rise and would continue to grow without the EU being reformed, which it has not. Martin was on to tell us decades earlier that the imminent threat of the return of fascism to Europe was inevitable. But you can only hear the most horrible story you will hear about personal relationships being marketized and how the rise of fascism in Europe is nothing new. In fact, we've been 
reporting on it for 20 years. If you subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to the people who joined us this week on Patreon, Austin, Reason, and Alexandra. Thanks for joining us on Patreon. If you join us on Patreon, not only will you get our weekly podcast, which includes a new monologue by me, plus an interview, a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. The only way you can do that is by signing up at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up on this week's show. During the moment of truth, Jeff reads an interview with a monster. And we want to keep reminding you about our upcoming anniversary and listener appreciation party happening at Carrie's 2251 West Devon on Saturday, July 27th. So put that in your calendar. We want to thank some people for sharing the show online. And Alex will tell you what's happening on upcoming shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell, Alex Jerry. This Is Hell, your home for a futilitarian content. Alex, I know you have half a on the line. One, two... You know what to do. Interview with the monster. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. A journalist took it upon herself to interview the monster. They were to meet there at 3 p.m. in the shade of the Santa Fe Bridge on the El Paso side of the Rio Grande. The journalist arrived first and sat there on the grass of the embankment, eating a Fukuyama apple, looking out at the river. The day was bright with yellow and white clouds straggling through a pale sky. The journalist took this time to feel grateful for her existence and that of the magical earth and sun that sustained it. Silly person, a voice behind her said, don't you know this moment of contentment will disappear and one day you'll be dying from a terrible cause? Of course, this was the monster. How do you know it will be terrible? The journalist asked. No one dies from anything pleasant. The journalist didn't feel like making the effort to dispute this statement. It seemed nothing more than an opportunity to appear foolish. The monster was as tall as a three-story building, spent her days pacing around the trestles of the bridge with slow, leisurely strides, restlessly gazing across the river into Juarez. She'd been engaged in this activity for a few hundred and some years, since even before the Rio Grande had become a border between two nations. The journalist began her interview. What's your name? Where are you from originally? My name is Monster, and when I first became conscious, I was already pacing around the trestles of the bridge, actually around this very area before the bridge was even here. So I guess I'm originally from here, although it's possible I came from somewhere else too long ago for me to remember. Oh, wait, it's coming back to me. Well, no, it's not. Wait. No. Eh, ask me a different question. Why do you pace around the trestles looking out over the border? What are you looking for? Something. You know, there used to be people to watch. I wasn't looking for them, though. Now that there are only 456 people per continent on average, it's a lot less busy here, people-wise. I guess I'm looking for something that can travel under its own power, something from way down south, past the pampas of Patagonia. Maybe a naked mole penguin, or an alpaca, 
or a capybara. I think it's going to have a lamp on its head. Like a miner's hat? No, a desk lamp, I think, like those old-timey bankers used to have. An old-timey banker's lamp. Mm-hmm. On its head. Mm-hmm, yes. Maybe a llama? On its head. No, may- maybe that'll be the animal that will come. Nope. Let me ask you a question. Why do you call this a border? The U.S. and Mexico don't exist anymore. The Rio Grande doesn't divide two countries anymore. It's just the river through some land. But it's still a border of some kind. I mean, I, I have to change what I'm doing when I get to it. It, I don't know. You're right, I guess. It used to be a border. Now it's just a river. Anyway, what happens when the alpaca with the lamp comes? Then I'll know that all the go-getters have jumped into the sea. What? All the go-getters. Remember them? They were the ones who had to have more. They took their dissatisfaction with whatever was their current condition to be some kind of virtue instead of the natural, constant human sensation of being that it is. Most of us are content with eating something when we're hungry, or sleeping when we're tired, or getting new clothes when the old ones become too tight or too loose. But the go-getters, they wanted more. They wanted drastic change, control over changing conditions, growth, expansion, permanence, and then some. Well, you see there where, where that got you. All the trees are dead, all the animals are dead, most of the people are dead. And the ones that are left, the 456 or so humans on each continent, on average, well, they've had to scale down their expectations, and they're just happy to get some moisture when they're thirsty. But the go-getters, they want the best. And they heard that the most comfortable, beautiful climate is down in Antarctica, where the palm trees sway and the hurricanes blow and the naked mole penguins huddle, sweating and panting in their burrows. The go-getters are marching like mythical Disney lemmings to the southern tip of the Americas, and they'll see the sea sparkling down at the bottom of the cliff, so warm and inviting, and and they'll dive in and be immediately eaten by the last of the sharks. And how do you know this is going to happen? The llama with the banker's lamp on its head told me. Oh, so it was a llama. Yeah, that was a llama. But the one that comes next, when all the go-getters are gone, is not going to be a llama, as I've already told you. Ah, okay. So what will you do when the alpaca or whatever comes and, you know, the go-getters are gone? Then I can finally relax. I'll have someone stretch me a giant hammock and I'll lie down in it with a, with a cactus cooler and sip on cactus coolers all day. We can all relax then. The big lingering problem will be solved. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, that was wonderful. Hey, uh, there. Uh, I went to the memorial service for Danny Thompson uh, this week. Uh, yes. And you went to a different one in Ferndale, Michigan, uh, yes. or at least I was told. And uh, there were four people who were definitely missing from that service. Uh, you, Dave Buchan, Bob Jacobson, and Danny Thompson. And it would have been way better if all four of you were there. So uh, just again, I wanted to tell you my thanks for introducing me to Danny and everybody through uh, Theater Ublek. I really appreciate everything, uh, all that friendliness that you have introduced me to. So thank you very much, sir. Well, thank you for continuing to be a buddy of Theater Ublek. We really appreciate it. 
And, you know, thank you for being at the memorial. I actually saw you in a video that was shot by, <laughs> I don't know, Meredith, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I was supposed to be waving, but because she switched cameras so one would have better lighting, I gave a thumbs up sign for some reason. I didn't want to be like, hey, memorial <laughs> service, sweet. This is awesome. I go to these things all the time. That's what I do. In my well, life. you know, it's really fun to see everybody. That's the thing. Yeah. It's like. All these people telling great stories about Danny and, you know, having a great time missing him. But, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's <laughs> really, it really sucks. I mean, I'm really just, like, still feeling it. It's uh, it's a real drag, man. It is. It <laughs> is. Really it, 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 it's absurd, which is kind of appropriate. So, yeah. uh, Je- Jeffy, love you, brother, and I will talk to you soon. Okie dokie, man. Live from land stolen from the natives, This Is Hell, the best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Online, Thanks this week goes out to Jeff with 1F, Gorilla Gramophonics, P.A., Julie, Rich, Pete, What is Democracy? That's Astrid Taylor's movie. They shared our interview with Astrid Rosario, Astrid, Mark, and Ross, and a lot more people, but... We're running up against the clock right now. I want to thank everyone for sharing This Is Hell, however you share our show or any of its content, whether it's via Facebook, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Twitter, whatever you do. We truly appreciate your support. This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is more a think and drink. It carries Lounge 2251 West Devon every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Drop by, drink, hang out, watch me drink, get some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers and free show. Show-related books. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and plenty of people have so far. We currently have a 4.9 rating out of a possible 5 stars because someone who spends their time watching too much MSNBC seriously believes we're in the deep pockets of Vladimir Putin. If you rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, we'll read your rating and comment on the air. We got quite a few comments over the last few weeks, including this one from Tobias. <laughs> Wait a second, I got a cough. Jeez, jeez. We got a, quite a few comments over the last few weeks, including this one from Tobias, who gave us a five-star rating, and he writes that This Is Hell has something for everyone. It has something for everyone to agree with and to disagree with, often at the same time. Chuck lets the guests talk and pretty much lets you draw your own conclusions, although you do have to think, and oh boy, does it provoke thought. As uh, an aside, as side notes, because it is long form and the guests talk, you get a really good idea of character and the humanity of it all is rather engaging. Chuck is just ace. Alex is a star. Jeff is a wonderful fat lady. Oh, because he's doing the thing at the end of the show. I was trying to figure out what that meant. Uh, The intro is fun, and have I mentioned the thinking bit? Thinking is good. Chris also gives us five stars and says Chuck Mertz is as charming and sunny as his famous grandfather, Fred Mertz, but Chuck has an uncanny knack for peeling back current events to find the kernel of truth about our world, that this is hell. Great. Now I want popcorn. Jessica comments, a happy fun time extravaganza where you will learn much of what you are missing in your understanding of many things. Five stars. Kath says of This Is Hell, after also giving us five stars, getting well woke. 
with balanced cynicism. And that's definitely what the box would say if this is hell was a breakfast cereal. Getting well woke with balanced cynicism. Finally, Andrea rates us five stars and posts best podcast by far. Start listening, you fools. Andrea's words, not mine, but I am in complete agreement with Andrea's sentiment. You too can go to this is hell, go to facebook.com slash this is hell radio and give us five stars so I don't have to. And if you do and leave a comment, I'll read yours on the air. All right. I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. I want to thank our guest of thank Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth. Our guest correspondent, Brian Meir, who always reports on what is actually happening in Brazil. Thanks to Chicana and Chicano studies scholar Genevieve Carpio, author of Collisions at the Crossroads, How Place and Mobility Make Race. Thanks to Me Too Sanyal, uh, who is the author of the new book, Rape from Lucretia to Hashtag Me Too. Thanks for, to Ted Genoways for returning to the show to talk about his article, River of No Return, How Austerity and Climate Change Put Northeastern Nebraska Underwater. This week's Hangover Cure is a twist on potato salad, or potato tacos, sorry. Alex, what do we have going on on next week's show? Uh, Nathaniel Rich will be back on, well, not back on, he'll be back. Uh, we rescheduled him to talk about his book, Losing Earth, A Recent History, uh, which is going to be a real bummer. And we are going to have Lucas Kerner back on to talk about what's happening in Venezuela that you're not reading about in the press. If you are an artist or you know an artist that would be a welcome addition to our annual This Is Hell, This Is Art show during our anniversary and listener appreciation party in July, on July 27th, email me your or their art, and we will definitely consider it to be part of the 2019 show. We're also looking for musicians to perform as well. So if you are an artist or a musician or you want to suggest artists or musicians to take part in our anniversary party this year at Carrie's Lounge in July, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And in July, not only are we having our anniversary and listener appreciation party as we do every year, but throughout the month of July, we will only be featuring listener suggested guests, the guests you tell us to have on the show, all to show our appreciation for your support. So July is not only when we're having our annual listener appreciation party, but the whole month will be dedicated to you, our listeners. And if your guest is actually actually gets on the air with us, we will send you a surprise gift. Tune in Tuesday for our live stream at patreon.com slash thisishell at around 2 o'clock when I will offer a new monologue and an old interview from our archives that are not currently available online. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, where the coolest musicians get their news. This is hell. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Oh, Matt Damon. Uh, <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.